0: Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, special edition with Paul Emmick, Star Wars Part 1. That has got to be the longest title I have ever written for an episode. Paul Emig is an acquaintance of mine, and I saw a Facebook post he wrote about a year ago on the Star Wars prequels, and I was really impressed by how he broke those three films down and pointed out why they don't work as a narrative. I ran into Paul the other day, and I asked him to come onto the show so we could run through most of our favorite space saga. We ran way over, but managed to cover just about anything you ever wanted to know about the cinematic universe, excepting... Rogue One and Solo, which we'll get to later, I hope. I'm really trying to keep the podcast focused on the commentary course that it was originally created for, so that's why this is not a numbered episode, and I wanted to distinguish my episode with Paul from my talks with Dave Anderson. What better title for an episode about Star Wars than a special edition? Thanks for listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it wherever you find podcasts and my website at www.thatdellanddavis.com. You can find me there and my books on Amazon. And now my conversation with Paul Amick. And we should be live with Paul Emick. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Uh, Amick, the the Emick.
0: Okay. What is Czechoslovakian or... German, I think. German. That's what I've been told. Mostly Irish,
1: but um, the name is German.
0: So we have that in common. Yeah. I've got... My mother is a full-blood Czech, but when you say that, it's full-blood Czech who lived in a German
1: populated area of Czechoslovakia. So they spoke German, they spoke Czech. They're from Czech, Texas. Yeah. Nobody in my family... Nobody on my dad's side of the family, where the name came from, spoke German. I think there was... Some actual German in uh, on my mom's side, mm-hmm. um, but plenty of Irish on both sides. That's kind of if anyone asked me, I said mixed Western European, right, mostly right. Irish, yeah. just like
0: the rest of America,
1: just like the rest of America. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I should I shouldn't say that like a lot of America, mm-hmm. a lot of Anglo american Um. So we met the other day, and I brought up the fact that you had written this fantastic post on Facebook well, uh, regarding you. Star Wars. Yep. And it really it really drew me into it, and I thought you raised up a lot of good points. And I thought, let's have you on a podcast for a special edition. This is a commentary cast, so most of the time I play a film and I talk while the film is playing. And we go scene by scene, either with me or my friend Dave Anderson, and we, we say, look at how the scene is shot. And look what the director is saying with, with his narrative and what is he trying to say. Or what are we just making it top, stop? No. Or are we just making stuff up? But in, in this case, and sometimes I do this with Dave, I just do like a special report where we just drink and we just talk about movies. <laughs> and I thought this would be a perfect opportunity because not that... I mean, Dave is in our generation, so he is a Star Wars fan, but uh, we never did like a deep dive on this. And you and I have had several conversations in the past, and it's very clear by this post that you spent a lot of time yeah. thinking about Star Wars.
1: I, I do, yeah. So I think it's fair to say.
0: I got i got a couple of questions here, and I'm hoping that you can help me relive the the pleasure of our childhood Mm -hmm. and the torture of our adulthood.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. The first question is, what is is your first memory of Star Wars? You know, I remember, because I was born in 77 the year it came out, so obviously I couldn't have seen it in 77, but I do remember seeing it. So I think that they must have re-released it right before Empire. Um, Because I remember seeing A New Hope and Empire in in pretty quick succession. Um, And I was aware of them, but I don't really remember much about Empire from from being a kid. So maybe we only saw it once in the theater. Maybe it was a little too dark or too late in the night to see it. Um, I really remember Return of the Jedi. Um, I remember being six years old. I remember when it was Revenge of the Jedi and getting excited for all that. I remember the new toys coming out. Uh, I remember seeing the posters everywhere. And then I remember finally seeing it at the theaters and, um, you know, Return of the Jedi for all its flaws. The first 30 minutes or so on Tatooine at Jabba's Palace is still maybe my favorite 30 minutes of the whole saga. And maybe just because it is, uh, it just harkens back to me being a kid and remembering that sequence and all the different aliens and all the cool stuff that was going on. Just reminds me of being six years old again. Um, so that that's that's my big childhood memory. Okay. So you're
0: you're right in the re-release. So I was born in '75. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've done a lot of soul searching and memory searching and a lot of family chronology. I am pretty sure that my earliest memory of my life mm-hmm. is in a Star Wars theater watching the Tie Fighters fly through. Yeah, because it was so. Amazing to see. My I think I believe it was standing room only
2: mm-hmm.
0: back when they would do that. And my dad was holding me while we were watching the movie. Or either that or he took me out of the audience because I was crying. <laughs> right, and we were trying to get back in. Um Star Wars was re released uh every year until nineteen eighty. Okay. And its first run, it was released in uh June of nineteen seventy five and it ran until Christmas. Mm -hmm. So the Christmas blockbusters that came out for the holiday finally pushed it off the screen. So it ran for about six months in its initial run. They brought it back every summer until 1980. So I'm thinking, if I was born in 75, and I have a clear memory of this, um, and I was just past being a toddler, probably saw the 79 re-release. Okay. Because I remember seeing the line for Empire and seeing Empire in a theater very clearly, and I was alive.
1: Because that came out, what, 80, 81? 80,
0: yeah. And then Jedi is eighty three, right? And so by then I'm I'm like you I'm eight nine, mm-hmm. so that's that's clear as day,
2: yeah,
0: right. So, uh, I think we all, as children of that area, era, we share that memory. But Star Wars, even at the time, and I think this is something that's going to differentiate it between the prequels and this whatever we call these last three films. Mm-hmm. It's different in that. When Star Wars Empire and Jedi came out, filmmakers of the era
2: mm-hmm.
0: knew that things were changing. Um, people like Peter Bogdanovich, who was of the new Hollywood, went to see Star Wars and said, oh my God, I am now irrelevant. <laughs> um, Scorsese and Brian De Palma uh, des- decidedly not to do anything uh, like Star Wars immediately or in their career. Scorsese never, and De Palma would wait 30 years before he did Mission to Mars. Right. Because he didn't want people to associate anything with that. He wanted it to be more Kabruckian, like 2001. hmm But I, I think that's in vast contrast to uh, the prequels. Yeah. Where filmmakers of the era, even though there were a lot of technological achievements going on with digital technology at the time, uh, The Clone Wars being the first movie that was shot on digital, Mm-hmm. You don't have that same feeling. You don't have filmmakers looking at it going, that's changing everything.
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I think uh, you almost got more of a sense from The Matrix, which actually came out the same year as Phantom Menace. Oh, good point. Um, as, As this is a leap forward, Phantom Menace didn't seem like a leap forward in filmmaking.
0: Right. And unlike Phantom Menace, I went to go see The Matrix like three times. Yeah. In the summer of 99.
1: The rose-colored glasses were on for a little bit longer for me. <laughs> I, I wish I could say I wised up to Phantom Menace sooner, but yeah, I know we, we saw that a lot of times. I don't, 19, I don't know, you know if I wised yeah. up
0: to it, but uh, I was definitely uh, confused.
1: And yeah. we'll,
0: we'll get to that. Oh, so sure. That's your first memory. Uh, the first film, let's talk about Star Wars. and I'm, I'm deliberately saying not A New Hope. Oh, yeah. It was
1: Star Wars for a long time. Yeah. Why is that good? Why is the movie good? Yeah. To you. You know, it, it was so different from anything else that I'd seen and um I I think I you know, maybe it was a, movie was a little bit more accessible, maybe we just we just seen it more than anything else. Um, you know, I think when I really became um obsessed with Star Wars, which was probably around the time of Return of the Jedi and I think shortly thereafter, maybe it was 90, 1984. Um, Star Wars aired on broadcast television for the first time. And so um, in his early days of VCRs. And my uncle was kind of ahead of the time, and he was actually able to record it for us. So we had a VHS tape of uh, Star Wars. Um, God, I wish I had those 1984 commercials about NutraSuite and Macintosh and <laughs> um, movie previews and movie trailers from 1984. You uh, but But, um, you know, we just watched it so many times, so many times. And I think... It was you know. it was the first movie and, and maybe the only one since certainly the, the only one to do it on the scale that was it was it was a lifestyle almost as much as it was a movie. Um, I think the toys we had all the toys and so I think it was not just something we watched it was something we played it was something that we collected um, it was something that that kind of you know, inspired us to think deeper about the backstory of this weird alien that was in the background that we saw for two seconds and things like that. We didn't do that with E.T. You know, we didn't play E.T. We didn't collect E.T. action figures and stuff like that. So I, I think it was just the whole complete um, immersion in this world, which was anything unlike anything we had at the time. Fantasy? Yeah. Yeah, because I think there was other fantasy that, you know, even maybe friends or family members tried to get me into in the early 80s. I think the the Ralph Bakshi, like Lord of the Rings cartoons. Oh, and, yes. Um, I think Dune was there. Um, you know, I wouldn't call like the last Starfighter or things like that fantasy, maybe sci-fi. And, you know, they were all right, but none of them really appealed to me the way Star Wars does.
0: Right. Dune is a good, is a good pull. That's 1984. That's that's an immersive experience, but the fact that it comes after Star Wars, it's but that's a good relation. If you're if you're into Dune, if you're a Dune fan, that is by the way for our audience. I actually have a videotape which my I think my father purchased in uh, probably uh, 1979 or 1980 when he bought his first VCR. Yeah, which was I, I think it was it was like buying a car. It was oh like yeah, fifteen hundred dollars or something like mm-hmm. that, which we had until I want to say eighty nine or ninety. Right. So it ran for ten or you can't can't get a DVD player to last that long. No. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a good one. Um, the British Film Institute is kind of like the American Film Institute in that they they induct films that they think are culturally important only the uh, library of Congress, for example, when it inducts films that I think it only inducts like 10 a year, it it actually has determined that it's, it's, it has to be relevant to American cultural importance, but the BFI is not. The BFI is open to the world. They've inducted star Wars uh, long before everybody else. And actually put out a book on star Wars that this guy wrote about, and he brought up uh, really neat ideas, um, I can't remember the author's name, but he he talked about how all sci-fi from 1969 had been focused on 2001: Space Odyssey, and everything looked like that. Right. And then Star Wars came out,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and stormtroopers walking around in the desert with banged-up armor and dirt all over everything. Right. Not looking clean at all. Right. You have to clean droids. Uh, there are farms, moisture farms, uh, the cantina looks like a saloon in, you know, Destry rides again or something. It's just not, not what you would think is a typical sci-fi film.
1: No. Cause I think a lot of the sci-fi up until that time was, either either kind of really campy, you know, the, the, the flash Gordon's. although I think maybe that came out after star Wars, um, but it seemed like, you know, the Alien, the, the 2001, it was, it was focused on life on the ship. So it was very kind of claustrophobic. Right. And, and I think maybe that was a little bit more accessible to audiences back then. You know, we haven't been to another world, but we have been in space. There have been people who have been floating around on a ship. Um, so maybe that was kind of an evolution of that. So to me, it seemed like it was all about that, that confinement of space um, and, and maybe the tech of the ship. Uh, i guess star trek had been to other worlds um i don't know I that don't, I, I, i'm showing kind of my my nerd blind spot here i've never got into trek enough to, oh really yeah uh, i'd I just be well there is there is um here.
0: yeah i see your point there is a production similarity between star trek and, and star wars if you're talking about the original series because every every episode they would beam down to a planet yeah and right and it would obviously be a set over at paramount studios and it would look like a desert or whatever Western right. set was vacated that week. They would just reuse. So that would be a similarity, but it, and then they would go back to the ship, but you know, the, the enterprise in the sixties just looked like cardboard.
2: Mm-hmm. It just
0: didn't, it didn't look as slick or clean. And right. And star Wars has a, an Oscar for production design. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, and, and you see it. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing looking like you were saying the world yeah. that you're in. Okay. So, what are the film's flaws?
1: So, you know, I'm not going to say that the original trilogy is flawless. Um, You know, they did hire largely green actors. Um, But I thought, as a whole, it seemed well thought out. It, it 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 almost seemed like it was conceived as a beginning, middle, and end, and and I don't know if it was entirely, but but I got the impression, um, especially rewatching the original movies from the '70s and '80s, the original saga, that they were kind of thought out in a way that certainly the the sequels from the uh, the 2010s were not. Um, you know, I. I almost think some of the flaws are endearing. I, I think in terms of some of the production value and some of the special effects is, is that, you know, some of the tech wasn't invented then. They were kind of doing things on the fly. And maybe that ingenuity kind of led to a, just kind of a, a free spirit kind of approach to it. And so, so I, I think that's, that's kind of good. I, I know kids who would see it now that might look and say, gosh, that looks kind of old and kind of cheesy. But I don't know. I mean, I still marvel when I see the, the miniature work. When um, I see like the, the the Death Star run and think, you know what, that looks more realistic, even though I know it's just a scale model, than anything that a computer could could put together. Um, so you know, I choose not to kind of focus too much on the flaws of the the original saga as it was. Um, don't get me started on some of the other ones, though. Or maybe maybe get me started. Maybe that's <laughs> that's later in the episode. We're gonna right? get there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, there's a shot. In the Battle of Yavin, mm-hmm. where Luke looks out the window of his X-Wing and he sees one of his uh, wingmen
2: mm-hmm.
0: hit the Death Star, blow up. That shot was literally a, a truck, like a Ford F-150, mm-hmm. driving by a set in broad daylight at the Fox Lot in Century City. And a guy throwing a modified firecracker uh, <laughs> onto the set, which was a piece of plywood that looked like it was about twelve feet by twelve feet square, right. with stuff glued on it and spray painted gray, and with a thirty-five millimeter camera on a on a crane overlooking it. Um, when I think about what the crew had to do to make something that looked so good, right. It's unbelievable. And it really is. It's there, there was a documentary that was made in the 80s that has since been taken out of circulation. but you, HBO used to play it. It was called um, From Star Wars, The Jedi, The Making of a Saga. It was about 90 minutes. And that's where I saw that shot. I've said, Since then, I've seen it in other documentaries. Right. But I remember being about, uh, I don't know, 12 or 13 before I saw that. And I instantly recognized what they were filming. That two-second shot of just Luke looking out the window and then right. boom. And that's movie magic.
1: It really is. It really is. And so, I mean, I think for for comparison today, I mean, because so much is done digitally. And, yeah, I don't want to sound, you know, so analog and anti-digital. Because it, it, mm. it really is amazing in a lot of other movies. Um, but other than maybe stunt work, um, I don't think that there is... Um, maybe an art or a craft in movie making today where they, they really have to figure out how they're going to make this shot, how they're going to make this work and put that much effort and that much ingenuity into just a short sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe like the fast and the furious films where they've got to, you know, actually drive a car under something and somebody actually has to design it and risk their life or die trying, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe with stunt work like that, but, but not with effect shots, you know, because it is so easy and, you know, so affordable to do on digital these days, but um, I think it made them better filmmakers, yeah. and, and uh, I think maybe that's why it's held up better than some other films in the era. Joe
0: Dante, who directed Gremlins, mm-hmm. uh, has his own podcast, and I can't remember the name of it right now. But he he was talking with uh, another director whose name escapes me right now. But he said that was the the only real advantage. Of CGI, uh, was not risking a life. Right. Other than that, he really didn't have any purpose in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was. I don't know how far to push that. There's a lot of in-camera work that looks way better than CGI. Yeah. You know, uh, and a lot of times they do it because it's cheaper. But you know, a lot of CGI companies go broke, move countries. Uh, rise and fall with tied audiences. And I feel really sorry for anyone who wants a career in animation. <laughs> right. You know, uh, since everybody's doing it, but nobody seems to want to pay. And as I understand it, uh, the BBC did a, did a, a deep dive into this a couple of years ago about how the, actually the people who are pricing these things they don't know mm-hmm. how much the CGI is going to cost. Right. And, um, they they talked about Spider-Man and they said we're going to have a web. Shoot this way for three seconds. You know that's what's that going to cost us? And they just eyeball it. They're like uh, ten thousand dollars, and then what's this shot going to cost? Uh, Fifteen thousand. Like they don't really know. But And then that's their budget. And then they go to price it between competitors. And then in, in case of Iron Man, you had three CGI companies uh, that were, were doing work on Iron Man, and it's pretty amazing because the the movie films, the movie looks so seamless. Mm-hmm. Like one company did everything, and there is so much of it looks like it's done in camera, and maybe that's Favreau's masterful direction. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd rather it be in camera, and I think Abrams initially tried to go that direction because we saw a lot of props and things, in and in a real Millennium Falcon right. and a real, real creatures that were mechanical, and
1: and you noticed that right off the bat, yeah, you did.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't know if that was. His intent, I think his intent was just to get the best image possible.
1: I, I think I remember hearing that that was an intent, that that was a, a, a distinct choice to to use props and use real locations and real sets yeah. as much as possible. Um, I mean, the prequels, I mean, Liam Neeson almost quit acting. Yeah. Because he's like, I'm fucking tired of green screens. You right. know, it's like I'm I'm acting to a tennis ball and I'm standing just in front of a screen. Mm. Um, and I think he'd done two or three movies in a row like that. I think he did that. One of the, one of the haunted house ones and, um, something oh, else. Oh yeah. The
0: haunting of Hill house. Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, so yeah, he almost quit acting <laughs> over green screens. Uh, and, and you get that impression because nothing at all looks real in the prequels. Mm. And, and so I, I think that CGI was a huge crutch, uh, for George Lucas with those.
0: It, it looks like an artificial world. Yeah. Yeah, there are, um, and one of the other shots that I saw uh, upon the the re-release in the late '90s, when they re-released everything, and I think that's what drove Lucas to do the prequels. Was the re-releases made so much money? Right, and it wasn't even twenty years later in terms of Jedi. You know, I think it was only fifteen or seventeen years, but I'd, I'd seen a a B roll. Yeah. You know, the B-roll is the guy behind the camera running a, a film, usually at 16 millimeter, kind of as a documentary source. And it's it's on the Death Star set, and uh, Hamill and Harrison and Fisher and Mayhew are running down the hallway. It's when the stormtroopers are chasing him. And that was the first time I'd seen the set, the, the black glass floor, mm-hmm. and the walls that were lit with the white spots and, uh, the boom came into picture. And so Lucas said, cut, and he turned around, cut. What I was a perfectly good to run. What's, what's wrong? And he says, well, the boom was in picture and they all start like uh, harassing the boom guy, right? Yeah. Oh, the boom was in picture. And the camera pulls back and you see, you see the fact that the camera itself is inside this set. Right. And it just looked otherworldly when you watch it on videotape. And it was a real shock to see that this was something that somebody had created. Right. That that you know, like Kevin Smith was saying, private contractors brought in didn't build this. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, carpenters and and Studios in England built this. It was it was a real, uh, really took you out and showed you just how, in, in especially special, right the production design and the film was. And probably why it meant so much to our childhood, because you see that in other movies or about other movies, and it doesn't affect you like, oh, well, that's movie magic,
1: right, but, right. But
0: it, but it really does affect you with this movie.
1: It does, it does. Yeah,
0: and the one detraction I would say is just the dialogue.
1: Yeah, yeah, the dialogues and the direction not of the great. It, it it's sometimes and we still quote it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think
0: Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher used to say that, you know, you can type this shit, but you can't say it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. What's your favorite line?
1: From Star Wars? I mean, from the original, I'm a yeah. huge Yoda fan, so I mean, I'm still a do or do not. There is no oh, try yeah. kind of guy. But yeah. from From A New Hope, um, I mean, God, you know, we still joke about, but I was going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. I mean, that's... Yeah. The whiny loop. Yeah. I think that's just... Kind of so uniquely Star Wars, to, to love a movie so much, and yet kind of just pick out one annoying part and just focus on that to represent the whole.
2: <laughs>
1: and yet still not be down on it. Because usually if I'm making fun of a movie that way, I probably didn't have a high opinion of it to begin with. Right.
0: Well, you didn't take it seriously. Me against yeah. the remote is one thing. Me against the living, that's something else. Yeah. A lot of a lot of lines that come out of it, and it's actually surprising because if you watch American Graffiti, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a line in American Graffiti that you remember or THX eleven thirty eight. No, and you could arguably say that THX eleven thirty eight is probably a second best film as a director. It's it's actually if you went back and watched it now, you'd be pretty astounded how mm-hmm. good it is for something that was so experimental. Um, but the, the the lines in Star Wars and they're they're plentiful. Mm-hmm. And lines in movies go back to even before Casablanca. Here's looking at you, kid. We'll always right, have right. Paris. But to have so many of them jammed into a picture, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that speaks to the dialogue or just speaks to how many people have seen those movies and how many times. Right. I mean, I think if you think about some of your other favorite movies, you know, there's movies I love that I've only seen two or three times. I've probably seen A New Hope a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so maybe some of the repetition comes with that um maybe so much of just the social currency of being our age being uh men in our early 40s or how well do you know star wars you know do you remember this line do you remember this bit of trivia you know how many you know dots were on this tie fighter's wing or something like that I mean, at least I'm, I'm the oldest of seven kids five boys and at least for us our social currency uh and, and maybe our test of manhood was, you know, who remembers Star Wars the best? And we were the first generation to have a
0: VCR. Right. And to run that tape endlessly. Endlessly, yes. Right. Uh, So I'm not surprised that you might have seen it over a hundred times. I know I've seen it over a hundred times. I would run the tape out. I would use scissors to put the tape back into the cassette if it ran out, and I had to clean the heads on the VCR. Yeah. Um, I tell that to other people, and they, they look at me like I've got nine heads, like you can't possibly be be telling the truth when you said no absolutely absolutely i know i've seen it over a 100 times yeah and yeah. I, if if someone were to come in some divine force and say actually 205 i still wouldn't be surprised right like, yeah that would
1: it's probably right i think so yeah. what about the so. goonies i love the goonies but i've probably seen it We saw it three times in the theater showed it to our kids once so maybe that's four okay Okay. So, yeah, for, for, for comparison there. Yeah. That might come up
0: later because I just saw huh. it Friday night on the big screen. Okay. It was the nice. first time. Like I saw it in the theater when it came out in right. 1985, so I was 10. I saw it with my cousin. So I have a very clear memory of that, but I just just saw it in the theater again with my son. And it was he's seen it before, but that was the first time he saw it on the Gotcha. Picture, and it was... Has it aged well? It has. Okay, good. It has. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. It has yeah. aged very well. Good, yeah. good. Uh, okay empire. If if you were to just call out your top 3 favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time. Right. How many of those would be
1: Star Wars movies? And which ones would they be? You know, I'm so used to thinking of Star Wars as the collective and maybe that's my cop out answer to to best of or, or you know top ten list. So if top you had to choose one to be in the
0: top three. Which one would it be?
1: You know, I'd probably pick A New Hope. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like I love the first step into that kingdom. Um, you know, I, I think highly of the first Harry Potter book because it was my introduction to the world of Harry Potter. Um, I loved A Fellowship of the Ring not because it was the best film of the three, but because you know what, that's what kind of introduced me to that world and, and kind of immersed me, immersed me on that, that journey. And, and I think because I have just so much uh, emotional connection to A New Hope. Um, Empire, you know, I, I don't think there's any sane person who would uh, rank any of the other Star Wars films higher than Empire. I, I think it's inarguably the most well-made film of the saga. And as an adult, it's probably my favorite. I think I can safely say that Um, as a kid, I think maybe just because it was when it came out, it was kind of between the two movies that um, number one, I, I saw a new hope so many times. And number three, return of the Jedi was my favorite just because it did come out when I was that very impressionable six, seven year old. I think I hadn't seen empire nearly as many times as I'd seen a new hope or Jedi. And so as a result, maybe I didn't have the initial connection to it, but now that I've seen them, and rewatch them, Empire's just a flawless film, so so if, yeah, if I had to pick I'd, I'd absolutely pick Empire as, as the best, but I think I still have that favorite that's still kind of sentimental connection to a new hope
0: if you had to choose two films to go into three that were not star wars films which would they what films would those be
1: Oh, good question um I love pulp fiction um that's a movie that made me want to be a writer. I think the dialogue in that movie just feels electric and alive. And that movie was just so cool. Just so cool. Uh, so I would probably put that in the top three. Um, and then another movie that, you know, is definitely a love it or hate it movie, but I happen to love it is, is Anchorman. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I just, it's just silly fun. Um, and I think Elf, too. I think Elf has probably has become a Christmas tradition for us. It's a movie that I just delight in. And I know it's a holiday movie, but I've probably seen that more than any other movie, maybe next to Star Wars movies, just because we do watch it every year for Christmas. And I guess probably we have for the last 15 years or so. Um, that's still a delightful movie for me. Elf over Iron Man? Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough for me to separate the um, the MCU movies and kind of pick out one in particular. Um and I think I've enjoyed Iron Man in larger Avengers movies more than I've enjoyed any of the Iron Man films individually. I mean, if I had to pick an MCU movie, I'd probably pick Guardians of the Galaxy or Thor Ragnarok. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me a favorite is, is a movie that doesn't have diminishing returns upon multiple viewings. That I can I can view it once a year or, or twice a year and like, God, I, I still would rather be watching this than a new movie I haven't seen. I think maybe some of the other movies that I've really, really enjoyed. Okay, I didn't enjoy it as much the second time. Definitely didn't enjoy it as much the third time. You know, certainly an amazing experience seeing it for the first time. Um, but I think the the MCU movies, I think because it, it is such a larger canvas, you know, I, I think we can, we can be maybe satiated a little bit sooner um, because we kind of know, okay, well, all I have to do is wait for six months and then the next one's coming out. So I don't think it had the same... We didn't have to work as hard as we did for Star Wars, but we had to like really wait and really think about, okay, what's going to happen in the next one? What should happen in the next one? And then kind of pair that with what actually happened in the next one uh, and how our expectations were fulfilled or or usually unfulfilled. Um, (laughs) But I guess, you know, there was that that kind of almost immediate return in the MCU to where it it was always enjoyable, but I, I never felt like I had to work as hard. And maybe that's why I didn't have the attachment to it that I did for Star Wars.
0: Okay. That's that's fair game. Empire. To I feel the same way about Empire. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a finer Star Wars film. Yeah. I also don't think that there's a finer film. I think that if you were to pick out uh, the greatest movie ever made, like I don't I don't know why Empire wouldn't be there. Sure. Uh, followed by. Casablanca, Godfather part two. Right. Some would say now Pulp Fiction, Vertigo. Um, but nobody
1: says that. Right. Nobody thinks that. I mean, even, even like AFI, I mean, I think they put a new hope on there. Right. Um, which may be more significant culturally, but yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with anyone who would put, uh, the empire strikes back mm-hmm. in top five films of all time.
0: there's, Obviously, with the, the character of Darth Vader, and because of the style of his helmet, mm-hmm. and the fact that you have stormtroopers, Sturmaptolung in German, right? Um, there is a lot of fascism going on sure. in, in Star Wars as a whole, but probably never more pronounced than an empire, right? of uh, the overwhelming desire to control everything Mm -hmm. and, uh, at all costs, I must control this because if I don't have control over this, I have control over nothing. And that's, that's a very fascist behavior. And uh, 1980 does not seem like a year when we should be concerned with fascism?
1: No, I mean that was the year that we, um, I mean, we boycotted the Olympics, right? Um, so I mean, the Cold War was still very much in effect. Although I'm with you, I, I think kind of the, the fascist Nazi kind of Germany undertones less than the Cold War and, and kind of the, the, the Russian. I, I didn't get that sense in in Star Wars, uh, even seeing them now. So, so maybe hmm. sociopolitically there were things going on that could have influenced it i didn't get that sense i'm kind of with you it was more like a reflection of history uh and maybe some of those right jokes. as opposed
0: to what was going on at the time yeah, yeah. Um, well the ceremony scene at the end of a new hope is like straight out of triumph of the will by lenny riefenstahl right
2: right i mean that
0: that is that was so apparent like the first time i saw triumph of the will which i think was like on videotape and sometime in the early 90s yeah like it instantly popped out like oh my god and then i was upset sure you know, it's like I, I. What am I supposed to feel about that? I mean, it was such an obvious
1: rip. Right, right. But right. then again, I mean, that's a that's a film that's I mean, classic documentary. I mean, even if the subject and even if the the propaganda that it was trying to mm. put forth um, doesn't minimize the filmmaking. No, and, and no, much, not at all. Um, you know, it is still continue to influence at least kind of the way shots are set up or the kind of the way stories are told.
0: Sure, and uh, mood and tone. Absolutely, and, yeah. There's a lot of. Uh, uh, I have been shouted down, yelled at, I've had shit thrown at me. I've had, I've been named called for suggesting what I'm about to tell you now. Right. I went to a screening of, uh, uh, Fahrenheit nine 11. Right. At the university of Houston. Mm-hmm. And there was that moment I was in the film club. And so there was that moment where, look, well, okay, everybody just sort of step up to the mic and say what you want to say. And, and I said, well, everybody, I'm sure, realizes that this film has been denied a nomination at the Academy Awards of Arts and Sciences. Right. Because it doesn't meet the threshold of a documentary. Because you have to go through a fact-checking process to get nominated as a documentary at the Academy Awards. And it failed. So there's a lot of shit. There's at least 30% lies in this film. Right and everyone in this room seems to be okay with that because you have a political agenda. Right. So in my opinion, this is no better than Lenny Riefenstahl. Right. It is the same shit. It looks good, it looks slick, and it's lying to you at least 30% of the time. right. And you're buying it. Right. So congratulations. You love the lie. Yeah. You need to think about your life. Now, that wasn't really centered on me being somewhat politically leaning to the right sure. or the fact that people were calling George W. Bush Adolf Hitler and right. having no political context right. uh, uh, on how to say such a thing or what it meant, right, you know, or the fact that the Ku Klux Klan thought that George W. Bush was public enemy number one. Right. Right. So those two things were true at the same time. Yeah. And, and trying to have that political discourse uh, was almost impossible And, and, uh, but I, but I do think that's true. And now what I think that empire, how that can, how that just sort of flows into this conversation, Star Wars is it introduces those tropes and those images into your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why empire is so, so effective is that it's, it's like a warning, right? It's, it's like there's people out there that are like this, right? And they're real, like you. You might call Dick Cheney Dark Vader as right. a joke, right? But there's real people out there who who act like Dark Vader and think like him. absolutely, yeah. And and I think that uh, Lucas as a person, and Irvin Kirshner as a director, and Alan Ladd as a writer, uh, or I'm sorry, Lawrence Kasdan, um, Alan Ladd was junior was the producer. I, I think they were absolutely right to introduce those tropes into our consciousness. I, it was almost like they wanted to softly remind people that this was a, a problem when nobody was thinking about it. Sure. Everybody was concerned about what the fuck is Russia doing?
1: Right. Exactly.
0: You know, and like you were saying, 1980, the, uh, the Olympics, uh, the Af- the war in Afghanistan and then the terrorism problem that was going on. And, right. And the rise of the evangelical, Right. Reinforcing that stigma of of pinkos and the radical left, yeah, you know, it was almost like Empire was specifically was the soft reminder of fascism. Fascism is still a problem. Sure, certainly. That's that's why I think that it's so profound.
1: Yeah, I think that certainly adds to the profundity there. Um, I hadn't picked up on that as much. I mean, to me, I, I kind of see kind of the universal Joseph Campbell kind of myth, and, and I think that's certainly kind of the most interesting part of the hero's journey, is is what we get in Empire. I mean, if you kind of look at the classic hero's journey, you know, you'd, you'd almost need the saga to kind of make that metaphor. And and you, it's it's not hard to find, you know, you know, evidence that George Lucas was absolutely inspired by um, Joseph Campbell in, in that book. Um, so you're going to have to just,
0: for the purpose of our audience, please delineate Joseph sure. Campbell.
1: So, so Joseph Campbell is, um, I believe, a historian or an academic that, that kind of looked back on all the myths that have survived um, from, you know, the times of Beowulf and the Epic of Gilgamesh and you know, the 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 Iliad, the Odyssey, and and kind of realizes that there's some recurring themes in all of these great stories that survive that really inspire um, people and and get passed down. And so I think you kind of talk with uh, with a hero who's you know, maybe longing for something else, you know, maybe not in danger, but but kind of longing for a change, longing for an adventure. And then something happens to really kind of disrupt his world. And then there's kind of a mentor that would come in and kind of help him, um, you know, along the journey uh, in Star Wars. It's, it's kind of Luke Skywalker being helped by Obi-Wan. And then kind of the, the middle part is is you have to kind of go and almost to kind of descend... Into the depths of hell, or kind of into a dark place where you have to really kind of face yourself and face your demons. Um, And so, I think in the Star Wars world, that would be you know Luke going to Dagobah, Luke going into the cave, Luke seeing, hey, there's something of me in Darth Vader, or maybe of something of me, Vader in me. Um, You know, of course, he doesn't know at the time that Vader's his father, but um, it it definitely kind of shows him and, and maybe scares him that hey, you know what, I could turn to the dark side too because I have that in me. Um, And and of course, you know, the hero's journey kind of, you you kind of come up, you face your demons and then you you kind of triumph in the end. Um, And I'm I'm probably doing a terrible job of paraphrasing, but um, the most interesting part to me of the hero's journey is that kind of, you know, descent into the depths. And maybe that's why Empire, I think, also felt so revolutionary um, because the bad guys win. Um, I mean, the good guys live to fight another day. Um, but there's definitely more peril than we felt in the first one where, where I think you kind of knew that, you know, the good guys were going to triumph, but you know, the bad guys punch back and and get a a solid punch in, um, and you're kind of left with that feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, bad stuff can happen to these characters I like. And how are they going to get out of this one? And so I think that that's really fascinating that you can have a whole film that kind of ends on that note. Um, yeah, so that, that I think that that's another, certainly another way that it felt different.
0: Sure. Well, you, you've got these three characters that you're invested in, and the first one, like you were saying, a, a well-built fantasy. It was almost like... Um, it's not that you didn't care about the characters, but you knew that they were going to make it yeah. out okay. You yeah. know, and losing Ben was bad, and uh, the dogfight was serious. But sure. you know, on well, the Battle of Yavin was, uh, you know, it, it was a Waterloo. It was a nearly close run thing. Right. Uh, but in the end, you had no no compunction that, like Flash Gordon, he was going to make it to the next episode. Right an empire by the end of it, you're not exactly sure if anybody's going to make it out. Like, you, you know, this is a sequel and it's very highly unlikely, but right. once they freeze Han, yeah, then you're like, Oh, w- well, what is, there's a huge question mark. What does that mean? Right. And, uh, a CPU is already blown to bits. Yeah. Uh, brutally for a kid to see like, uh, uh, Rosencrantz of the Gildenstern blown, blown away like that. Right. And then, um, uh, then you've got the friend who turns into a traitor. Right. And uh, after Han's tortured, of course, this, this, that's upsetting. And Luke loses his arm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you have the feeling that Leia just barely escapes with her life. Yeah. And you, there's this trauma after it, like you were saying, of, well, they they made it through. But it was by the skin of their teeth. Right. Right. And there was real inherent danger. And perhaps that's why Jedi would went completely the other way. It was more loaded with levity. Right. It was the victory lap kind of, you (laughs) know, the, the saga. Uh, I don't, um, I don't remember the exact play around that happened in Hollywood, but, you know, there was a point where Lucas, Lucas wanted, uh, Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. to direct Empire.
2: Okay,
0: I'm sorry, it was Jedi. He wanted he wanted Spielberg to direct Jedi. He was getting ready for that. So he but probably would the, have been
1: on Temple of Doom at the time. The, right.
0: right. Well, they were yeah they were making Temple of Doom, which I I just saw last weekend mm-hmm. on the big screen. That was another experience. Nice. Yeah, um, yeah Paramount re released all of them. Uh, they, they were they were doing that, and you know Spielberg and, and Lucas at the time were they were running in in quick step together. Right. And Lucas actually shot second unit on Temple of Doom. Shh. Don't don't let anybody right, know. Right. So like the entire bridge sequence was actually Lucas. Okay. Uh, and it's it's pretty seamless. But so anyway, he wanted him to do to do Jedi but because of uh, Lucas it was having a problem with the director's guild but because of the whole opening credit sequence. And they said, "Look, we already let you get away with this twice. We're not going to let you get away with this." He, he, of course, was like, "I'm a storyteller. I'm trying to tell a story. You know, f you." And so they said, "Well, you can't hire anybody in a director's guild to direct it." So he had to go outside and find mm-hmm. somebody. And the first person he he tried was uh, David Lynch, who directed stuff in England And he was he was prepping for Dune. Right. Uh, so he had he would have had to pull out of Dune, and of course Ridley Scott had pulled out of that. Right. Uh, to do Blade Runner and of course uh, Blade Runner was being set up or Warner Brothers uh, previously by David Lynch so it was this whole like circle that was right. going on when these projects had been flipped around and you could have you could have very easily had a Jedi directed by David Lynch and, and a Doom directed no. directed by Ridley Scott you know and uh, uh, you could have had a Blade Runner directed uh, who knows by Steven Spielberg. Gotcha. He, it would have been completely right. more completely ready different. player one right. type than, yeah. you know, or at least AI. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so, uh, moving on to Jedi, uh, Kevin Smith famously once said in clerks that all Jedi had was a bunch of Muppets,
2: <laughs> but yeah,
0: I remember like we were saying before, just how, how amazing it was to be a kid in the theater to watch Jedi. It was, it was an amazing experience.
1: It was. And I think it's so different from, I mean, like I know like Phantom Menace, George Lucas had a little bit more of a a kid audience in mind. I don't know if he was just a new grandfather or something like that, but it seems like he made choices deliberately for kids. Like he made that movie for kids. Um, And and I think maybe in his head, he was thinking, okay, I'll I'll hook them young. And then for this generation, you know, the prequels will be their star Wars. Um, and it felt kind of pandering Uh, Jedi didn't Um, you know. it it just happened to be kind of the right age Um, and I remember I think it was How I Met Your Mother um, Barney, uh, Neil Patrick Harris' character, he actually said that (laughs) suit up, the the Ewok line he said there's the Ewok line if you were born on this side of the Ewok line then you find them incredibly annoying (laughs) but if you were born on this side of the Ewok line they look like your teddy bears and you instantly loved them and and wanted to adopt one and stuff like that. So so I, I think I was born on that side of the ewok line where I loved them. I thought yeah. they were great. Um you know kind of seeing it now it still seems a little cheesy but I mean to me um you know I'll I'll take the the muppets from the the first 30 minutes of the movie any day uh, cuz again you know there was such a such a variety of them and maybe they had a little bit more screen time than they did in the cantina where you know you just got a little little glimpse of each one but here you got to see like the gomorian guards kind of wandering around you got to see Bib Fortuna you know kind of talk to Jabba you got to see uh the skiff guards and, and how different they looked you know in in actual combat um so that that was kind of maybe this this more is more approach to all right you like aliens well here's a bunch of fucking aliens um you know you can you can really if you're a little kid you mean really kind of you know, kind of get in the sandbox and play, uh, in that world with the first 30 minutes. So what does it have beyond that? You know, maybe not as much. And I think it's probably the weakest of the three. Um, but For I sure. always, I always wonder if, if any resolution to a, a three act saga in the Star Wars universe would be as appealing as the first two acts.
0: Is is the third act in any saga any good? I mean people point to the Godfather Part Three as a perfect point of reference. For but that. if they
1: made if if Coppola had made The Godfather Part three in nineteen seventy six, I think it would have been a different movie than it was in nineteen ninety. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Or if if any number of things had changed, if if
0: Paramount had decided to pay Robert Duvall what he wanted or right. If Winona Ryder hadn't been uh, falling right. down exhausted to on do
1: set, Roxy Carmichael instead of Godfather Three. Yeah. yeah,
0: well, she—I mean, she she had to go in the hospital like right. that. That girl had worked every day since she turned sixteen. Yeah, and she was like twenty. She was pooped, and uh, you know you, you can joke and say, yeah, Heather's doesn't look that that exhausting. But you would be on set for five hundred days no, straight. Yeah. I remember
1: she that that year that she backed out of that. I mean, she did have like three other movies that came out like the same month yeah and most of them sucked but you know it was still she must have been just hopping from one project to the next
0: apparently so yeah. and uh you know what scares me is apparently benedict cumberbatch is the same way is he he just goes from set to set to set to set and nicholas cage apparently has been doing that for
1: 10 years oh well i mean his lifestyle requires a six movie a year <laughs> <laughs> you know all these castles don't pay for themselves yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, but we uh, we all know that um, actors and people in that industry, they the, the lucky ones, that probably the ten percent of the inter- industry who do uh, make enough money to live that way. You know, we can we can joke about how hard is that life really? Sure, but it's not. Particularly those those soap opera actors who yeah. have to churn out an hour performance five days a week. Yeah, like fuck that. I'm not interested in that. Exactly. No. That's tough work. And yeah. And there's an entire industry of like how many cameramen, how many boommen, how many right. assistant directors, how many continuity girls, how many set people you know, it's fifty people on set with right. soap opera. Yeah. You think about how many people are on set at Jedi. Oh my god, some of those scenes with with the Ewoks, it look like there's fifty Ewoks on screen. You right. Know, you know, you gotta dress those people, you gotta get up at three AM to do it. The the production style of it, the I, I just recently watched all of Game of Thrones in about six months. I'm going to write a blog about every, yeah. every episode. It's about 25 pages. I'm kind of embarrassed about it, actually. But I'm not a particularly big fan of Game of Thrones. But you can just tell by looking at it, it's more ambitious in scope than Lord of the Rings was. Yeah, yeah I think so. And Lord of the Rings, now that I think about it, is probably, like the, in terms of like the scope of the story, probably the biggest since Jedi. Right. I'd agree. You know? And uh, that doesn't look... That looks like a lot of work, and I don't I don't know, even if you paid me what Harrison Ford made on Jedi, I don't know if I'd do it,
1: yeah, even if it, I was
0: that talented.
1: Exactly. There, there, there's some movies where you look at that, and I'm like, oh, gosh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. No, thank <laughs> you, know, you. Exactly.
0: But Leia does look good in a bikini. Yeah. I saw the re-release of Jedi. I think it was in 97 and
1: 98. Yeah, I think 97 was when they were because yeah. I remember being in college, and it, and it being like, that was the tease before phantom menace like i don't think we knew at the right. time that another one was coming out so it was kind of like okay here's the three movies and in quick re-release which which we loved even if we hated the, the new editions. Mm-hmm. um just you know seeing them as an adult on the big screen was like it was amazing it was, it was amazing, only, the, it was the amazing. um and i couldn't believe the uh, the
0: slave girl outfit that like i was 20 something by then and i hadn't seen it on such a big screen since since i was eight yeah. And I couldn't believe, like, how revealing it. Well, like, you can see Carrie Fisher's ass Yeah, uh, when she jumps onto the gun. And, and watching it that large is like, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wow. Like, I saw that as a kid. Right. You know, and you start having mixed feelings about that. Now, sure. your kids are my kids watching that. And, and, and Carrie Fisher complained for a long time about, hey, you know, this this is all being misconstrued. like and she she said like i don't have control over my own image like i'm not complaining about it i signed it away for money but right, right. but try to live in that headspace for your whole life when you turn 50 60 65 right. you know i i get it but i mean she just in terms of an icon you know and i a lot i know that a lot of people are complaining about the slave bikini now sure but that's an iconic image that used to be the, on it the is. poster that used yeah. to be on the videotape absolutely and she and she's Dead fucking sexy. And yeah. there's no eliminating that from our consciousness ever. I mean, right. to a lot of us who are that age, she's probably that first sex symbol for us. Sure. You know, and if you're going to pick one, uh, why not pick a strong female protagonist right. who takes him? She's the one who kills Jabba. Right. She's the one who blows up the
1: barge. Absolutely. You know? uh,
0: she's the one that, leading that the rebellion.
1: Of, um, like maybe submission, you know, kind of. You know, wearing that outfit, either because of kind of sexual submission or because of humiliation and kind of immediately mm. turning that on their head. Yeah, right. Right. Positive. It could be a positive. Yeah. Keep and then longer. She,
0: right. <laughs> yeah. And she uh, uh, she wrote a great book about Star Wars called uh, Wishful Drinking. Right. Know, it was autobiographical. And and she talked about how uh, the gaffers would come by and, and put gaffing tape over her nipples uh, so that it wouldn't show through her dress in the first movie, because there were no bras allowed in outer space or something. Right. And I, when you think about what an actress has to put up with, I mean, this is Debbie Reynolds' daughter. Right. And now you've got gaffers coming. Okay, take your shirt off. We got to put tape on your nipples. Right. Like I, I don't know if an actress would put up with that today. Right.
1: Right, in the days of nipple clauses and things like that. Well, yeah, and
0: then now we have, like, uh, nudity clauses. Now we got someone on set who's there to make sure that the actors feel safe when they disrobe. And uh, what's her name? Anne Hathaway has talked about how she's been nude on set before, and she's heard uh, stagehands, like, uh, laughing off set and making rude comments. Like, fuck those people, right? right? I mean, this... Putting this actor is putting themselves in a vulnerable position, sure, in order to get a performance that the director wants, has hired her right. for. And uh, uh when we can we can oogle it all we want, but uh, that's that's a difficult job, sure. You know, um, I don't, th- I don't think Car- Carrie Fisher gets a lot of uh respect for for doing something that brave and being that symbol very for all true. of us, very true, I mean, probably not and when i think of jedi that that's probably the primary image and then the ewoks right and finding out i mean finding out at the end of empire that vader is luke's father that was i mean if anything will send a six or seven year old right into
1: a coma i know it did for our kids uh, i think i think i feel sometimes like my my primary job as a father was to, one, make sure my kids, like, don't grow up and go to jail. Mm. And, like, just below that, to keep the Luke Vader reveal <laughs> a secret just long enough to where pop culture doesn't spoil it to them. And and I think I did that. I think I remember it kind of popping up sometime when they were kids because we had little Star Wars books around for them to learn to read with. But I think by the time we showed them the saga, I think at least Eliana was like, no. Yeah. Which is Amazing, and I think it was, was so satisfying to see, which is kind of cool because I don't remember that reveal, uh, and maybe I was just too young when I saw it. Is it, it didn't didn't hit? I, I, I don't remember the first time I saw Empire. I mean, I, I know I must have, um, but maybe just being of that age to where you know, if I was six when I saw Jedi, I must have been like four or five when I saw Empire. Yeah. So so maybe it was it was it was too young for the weight of that reveal to hit me. So I think I kind of feel like I've been in a world where I've always known that, but I don't remember the revelation. You you were a little bit older, so I mean, do you remember? Like, I was traumatized
0: by it. Yeah, yeah. And then shortly after that, and of course, Luke. You know, you've got the traitor. Han's frozen. Vader's your father. Trauma hits. Lose your right arm. Escape by the skin of your teeth. Like there was a whole. There was a thirty-minute sequence at the end of Empire that was like for a kid. It was like uh, I thought I was coming into a safe world. Right. And then now that world is completely disrupted. Sure. And so maybe that maybe that's why Jedi is so light is because it it was it was kind of like when Temple of Doom came out and kids were running out of the theater screaming. Sure. And Lucas and Spielberg was like, oh, shit, what did we do? Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden the PG-13 argument and everything. And, you know, I I saw Temple of Doom uh, with my kids. I don't remember how, how old Luke was. Probably my age when I saw it, seven or eight. And, you know, he got through it. Okay. Yeah. And I remember seeing, I very vividly remember seeing Temple of Doom on 70 millimeter at Lowe's Theater at Showville. Sure. And, you know, it was, I thought it was like the greatest thing since Raiders. Right. So I didn't, I didn't have that reaction. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how old those kids were, but I mean, that's a, that's a valid concern when you're making movies. Sure. Like, so Absolutely. I don't, I don't, uh, uh. I don't fault Spielberg and Lucas making Jedi So Light or Last Crusade So Light, which right. we're going to tonight at right. uh, six forty five. Nice. Yeah, for the another re release. We saw Raiders yesterday.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh but well, I mean if you're gonna if you're gonna choose a moment out of Jedi, what mm-hmm. is what is your moment? I mean to me it's like Leia taking charge in the bikini, uh kicking the shit not uh, killing Job, kicking the shit out of everything, saving R two, really. Yeah. You know, getting up on the deck with Luke and swing into the to the skiff—that
1: to me is like my moment in Jedi. What's yours? Um, it's it's either when when Leia rescues Han, you know, melts him out of carbonite, which I thought was just so cool, um, even though the the special effects look kind of kind of weird now.
2: Yeah, um, yeah,
1: and then they just turn around, and there's the whole Java's court.
2: Ooh, ooh, um, ooh,
1: ooh, ooh. I love that. Ah, ah, um, ah, ah. Ah and and then uh to me it's it's, it's all about the uh, the sarlag pit uh, you know, <laughs> i I think maybe just because that was the easiest thing for us to play pretend when we were six years old was like, all right, that patch of dead grass that's the Sarlacc. and we're just writhing around that, trying to rescue each other and pull it up and uh, work around that so I, I think just maybe just being that age to where it was kind of like playing pretend because i mean we we'd seen lots of. I mean, if you look at not just Star Wars, but sci-fi, I mean, all the aliens are bipedal. You know, it's like they're on two feet. They're about six feet tall. They will look and walk a lot like humans. But like, here's this like monster in the ground that has tentacles and teeth uh, underground. I mean, we hadn't seen anything like that. That was just really cool. So that that really stuck out for me, you know, and, and I guess the story kind of peters off a little bit. I mean, I, I like the Ewoks, but, um, you know, I, I could watch the first half hour of that movie and be happy and then kind of turn it off.
0: Yeah, well, I I really dig the space battle at yeah. the end, the battle of Endor, and I but I find it frustrating. Like I remember even when I was a kid with the VHS, definitely in the '90s when I was rewatching it on VHS, I would s- speed forward the scenes in the throne room. Yeah, that to me was slow and boring. I'd get to Endor space battle because it it's like a vignette. Throne room, indoor, space battle. Right. Throne room, indoor, space battle. I wanted to get really to the space battle. And uh, Lando stepping up to the plate was really cool. Because right. he goes from the traitor to... Redemption. Right. Really quick, too. Right. And I think everybody can side with that. Yeah. And I just saw Lando as this, this person you can turn your life around you sure. can do the right thing despite doing something bad in the past you can do the right thing right and i think that message is i've talked to i talked to dave about this how that the that message of redemption it's probably uh, i'd have to do more work on it it's probably original to western cinema you don't mm-hmm. you probably don't see that a whole lot and it's probably because it specifically comes
1: from the christian culture sure right I think maybe a little bit of the Jewish culture too. I mean, I think like almost like this atonement too, because I don't think oh. it's just retention. I, I think there's a little bit of atonement. Jews too, are right?
0: big on atonement for um, sure.
1: I think, uh, kind of going from, and he couldn't just be redeemed. He couldn't just be forgiven. He's like, yeah, how, all right, well I got us into this mess. Mm. How do I fix it? Okay. Let me put on, uh, this weird mask and pick up a vibro blade and join Jabba's yeah. crew. Um, I'm going to make it right. Be an inside man. So, so I think there's a little bit of that too, but I think, um, that, that was a great story arc, even if it was kind of a minor character in the whole saga. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it certainly fits in, in kind of the, the overall themes of, okay, yeah, you could do something wrong, but if you, you make up... And it's weird, I don't think we really visited that type of arc really very much again in the whole saga. Mm-hmm. Where where a character makes a mistake, maybe sells out somebody else, and then has to kind of work to get, get it back and make it right.
0: Yeah, no, I, I did... I did see a moment in the Rise of Skywalker where Finn, Rey and Poe have this moment of, you know, you used to be a scavenger, oh you used to be a thief, oh well you used to be a stormtrooper. So don't Right, right. Don't judge me like we're all three here doing something better than we used to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I actually like that. That's true. Yeah. That part of the storyline. And uh, don't cast a stone type of thing. We all live in a glass house. Sure, sure. I, I like that message. Moving on, we mentioned the special edition. So I got to ask you. Yeah. In your mind, who
1: shot first? Well, it's not who shot first. It's who shot. <laughs> Han shot. Period. <laughs> <laughs> in the story Greedo didn't get off his shot uh, I mean that that's kind of how it is It's not who shot first, it's Han shot Does it matter? You know, probably I think it's fun to talk about uh, And that's kind of a, just another one of the ways in which Star Wars Kind of rewards beyond just viewing Because the conversations are just so much fun um, You know, I, I always thought It made Han more of a badass And not even just a badass I mean he's, he's smart, he's got to live The smuggler's life to where he's always got to be dealing with these unsavory, you know, characters. And if you're about to get shot and you've got a clear shot, you take it. I don't think it makes him ruthless. So I don't buy into this. And, and I don't know if, if George Lucas was thinking that, that, you know, Han's a good, noble character. He wouldn't kill somebody in cold blood. It wasn't cold blood. Like, Greedo was going to shoot him. And so he had a shot and he took it. Hmm. So I, I I, I choose to think that, that Han shot. Greedo did not. He's in a corner. <laughs> yeah. He's literally in a corner. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it probably wasn't the first and only time that Han Solo right. did it. Right, yeah.
0: Sorry about the mess. Yeah. There's something suave about... I think so. Harrison I Ford's so. acting. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And I think that changes his character. Yeah. And I'm not cool with that. I don't know if I want someone waiting for the shot to be a general in a
1: rebellion. Right, exactly.
0: You know? And you see that in... Uh, uh, Rogue One, mm-hmm. when uh, Diego Luna's character right kills his informant, right, he's like, "Look, uh, that's a, I'm sorry, but you got to go." Yeah, and that's when you know when you're when you're dealing with things like revolutions, things like that matter. They do. Those are hard decisions that everybody's got to make. Exactly. And I'm just glad that I don't have to make them. That we live in a society where. We're not having to quell revolutions right. or start them. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. But
0: that's why we have a government that pays a professional <laughs> army and a spy service so that we don't have to. Right. Worry about. Thank. Thank God, I don't have to. I'm perfectly fine not making those decisions. Yeah. Uh, the Bespin environment in the re-release of Empire mm-hmm. really, really, really looks bad to me. Looks Does it? too okay. too bright. Uh, looks off Looks great on the Blu-ray <laughs> I, I, I watched it yeah. recently About three months ago Really distracting okay. uh, Panels, entire panels In the background uh, turned blue And then replaced with Outside images of Bespin right. When they're running around it's Instead of watching Leia and the Wookiee Now you're watching shit Fly out the window Right. Takes your eyes off the narrative. Right. You're not watching her flee anymore. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. I'm not supposed to
1: be looking at that. I'm supposed to be looking at the story. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I found like the, the special edition of Empire to be the most seamless of the editions. Um, maybe just because, you know, uh, A New Hope and Jedi were so obnoxious uh, with the editions. Um, to where it's like I almost didn't notice them the first time. And then kind of seeing them in subsequent viewings, I can see, okay, it's really Bespin where they kind of touched it up, made it look a little bit more sleek and futuristic. So I didn't mind as much. I think maybe just because I really, um, especially the last time I saw it on Blu-ray, um, just the whole color palette of the whole entire Bespin sequence was Lovely. just so beautiful. You know? it, it it looked like, it was like sunset colors. Everything was blue and orange um, and white. And it, it, it really... Was so meticulously designed, so so I, I thought the special effects, you know, that they added in, didn't detract from it for me. But I, I could maybe have to look a little bit closer to kind of see. Well, we I, about I
0: do that. think out of the three, I think that Empire has the least amount being fucked with, right? And that's possibly, I'm glad that's the case for sure, and that's possibly why it escapes so much scrutiny. Um, did you see the cut footage from the first film of the real Jabba?
1: I did, okay. yeah. I mean, he looks a lot like Uncle Owen, right? Right. That's um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, and then you saw the CGI Java, right? So, and I remember seeing kind of a an explanation of that because I think Han walks behind Java, the the human. Yeah. Um, I think in the original cut scene, and so they had to kind of. Animate him stepping on Java's tail. Right, right. Um,
0: I and then thought, raise him a little bit. and Yeah. So, I mean, real Java, CGI
1: Java, or no Java? Which one would you prefer? I prefer no Java. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think you get the picture um, that, that Han's running from something, that he, he did something wrong, and he's, uh, a, you know, very dangerous persons out to get him. And, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what it was cool about Empire is you almost forgot that Han still lives in this dangerous world, even though he joined the rebellion. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to help you kids kind of take out the Empire, but oh, by the way, very dangerous people are still after me. And you almost kind of forget that and put that on pause until, um, you know, Boba Fett's like, well, like, I can tell him um, and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about Java. There's this, He's still a smuggler. There's still people out to get him. Um, so I thought that was just kind of a, a cool way that it almost kind of reminds you of the larger world that, that's waiting for this character um, outside of the rebellion. So,
0: after Star Wars and before Empire, there was a story record released on vinyl.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it was about 45 minutes. And this is, you know, one of those you could listen to a story on record. Yeah. And it was called Rebel Mission to Ord Mantel, which is actually... In the film, Han mentions it when he's in the tunnel. When Leia says, I, you know, "I thought you were staying," and he says, "Well, that bounty hunter we ran into on Ord Mantel changed my mind." That's, That's in reference synergy. to this yeah. story. And the story is that um, the 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 Rebel Alliance is out of cash,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so they effectively they organize a heist uh, on a of a star destroyer. And they're using the Falcon as the getaway car. Yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, uh, Boba Fett shows up because he doesn't even know what's going on. He's just tracking Han. Right. And in the midst of tracking Han, he gets wrapped up into this uh, battle between the rebels and the, the Empire. And that's why he shows up in Empire. Okay. That's his introduction to Darth Vader. They meet Right. Uh, shortly after this battle, uh, the the rebels succeed. They grab the cash and and flee the flee the battle scene in the Falcon at the last minute, skin of your teeth type situation. Right. So it's very if if you can find it, I've got it. I don't know how to transfer it to digital, but, but isn't
1: that the same, very similar to the story that uh, the Star Wars Holiday Special told about uh, oh, Boba Fett yes. and their, their encounter? It may have even been Ord Mantell. Uh, right, met him on. So. Yeah,
0: I, I don't know, but see, I saw it when I was a kid, but I haven't seen
1: it since. Okay. I'll uh, have to get you, I, we, we, we have a, a DVD copy certainly, but, um, I also have, um, the Rift tracks version. So you can see the mystery science 3000 people actually <laughs> commenting on the, the cinematic masterpiece that is, um, <laughs> 30 minutes of just, you know, Wookiee talk.
0: <laughs> uh, Bruce, uh, Valanche, the screenwriter. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with oh, him. Yeah. yeah. He was, he's famously in Ice Pirates. He's the head. Uh, he's written several um, Oscar uh, Academy Awards screenplays, all the, whatever thing that everybody says when they come out to give to give yeah. the awards right. and everything. And uh, he's got this great story on the the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, yeah. um, which is highly entertaining just for Gilbert alone. But he's got this great story on there about how uh, he wrote that special. He was the screenwriter for that. He put that together. Right. And, uh, he said, George Lucas paid me an astounding amount of money for it. And every time they, they see each other now, he's like, George, remember when we did that in Hollywood News? George just walks away.
1: <laughs>
0: just don't even want to talk about
1: There's it. There's actually a, a quote, and I think, you know, you, it wasn't that hard to find a copy on DVD. And, and some fans had actually made some box art, so you could print <laughs> it out and have it. And it actually had a quote from George Lucas that said, if I had time and the money, I would hunt down every copy. and smash them with a hammer. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it really is that bad. And I mean, if Bruce Valange got paid to to write, I mean, literally, Jeff, the first twenty minutes are just in Wookie. Yeah, yeah. Uh so, I mean, I, I don't know what his screenplay looks gu-
0: like. I guess they're in Kashik.
1: Yeah, yes. or Shriwook, I guess is what it is. Yeah, yeah whatever. Kashik it is. is the the planet, Kashik, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll get you a copy. Okay,
0: so go down this rabbit hole with me. Yeah, John Barry, Norman Reynolds. Leslie Dilley and Roger Christian all got Oscars for best production design for star Wars. Okay. Over close encounters of the third kind Mm -hmm. and the spy who loved me, which was also nominated. So this is a big deal for me because the spy who loved me was designed by Ken Adam, who was possibly the most famous production designer who ever worked in Hollywood. Right. Right. Uh, you check out his resume. Every James Bond film, from Goldfinger to A View to a Kill, Ken Adams. So all of those evil lairs. Right. And even in Dr. No, but uh, Moonraker and so forth, it's all Ken Adams. Uh, he designed the famous uh, 007 soundstage in, I think it's Twickenham Studios, England, which is the largest sound soundstage in the world. That's where they shot the the three submarine scene and the spy who loved me. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: He also famously did, uh, let's see the war room in Dr. Strange love, which had the circular light and he was nominated for that. So is it fair to art directors and production designers who beat Ken Adam in a contest Mm -hmm. to then go back and say, your art direction and your production design wasn't good enough after they won an Oscar for it. Right. That seems, that seems pretty shitty
1: to me. It does. It, it does. Um, you have to remember that that Oscars is, is the best of that year. Um, and that there is a lot of, um, you know, kind of glad handing in the industry is kind of like, okay, you're due. And stuff like that. Although I think that comes into play more with actors and directors than with with uh, you know people that work on the technical side of it. Um, but yeah, i i I can't I can't nitpick any of the the design of the film. Um, you know, just from the look, which is um, I don't know if did did Ralph McQuarrie kind of design it or did he just more design the characters? Because uh, I know he was kind of the the visual artist that. Um, I certainly came up with a lot of the character yeah. sketches, um, yeah. but I think he had some of the the, the layout in mind as well. Um, just the way it, it looked, sci-fi, but it, it it didn't look that kind of cold either, and it it did feel like kind of a bigger world than maybe some other sci-fi. So, yeah, I, I can't nitpick the design, um, and, and I do think the production value certainly compared to other fantasy movies of that era, spectacular.
0: Well, you probably already know this, but. Yeah. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, a famous South American filmmaker. He did the Holy mountain, which a lot of people rave about. Uh, you know, he, he was putting together a, a deal in, in Europe under, uh, Dino de Laurentiis in mm-hmm. 1970, 1974,
2: 1975
0: to do Dune. Yeah. You know, they optioned Dune they're going to do Dune and, and, uh, they worked on it for about six months or a year. And I can't remember, uh, the director, uh, Jodorowsky had, had, had something lined up and a and they actually had a principal photography scheduled and then the financing didn't come through and the entire deal fell apart and then pretty much everyone who worked on on Dune uh, immediately started working on Star Wars right so there were, there was a lot of those the, that headspace and that consciousness and a lot of those small companies and those those groups of people who worked in smaller studios then. Went uh, either already in the UK or they they went to the UK from France to go immediately work on Star Wars. So there was a there was a team coalescence that was already there. Right. And Macquarie was not involved in that. Right. Yudarovsky um, since they've uh, they've made a documentary about it called Yudarovsky's Dune, which is on Netflix. I, I would definitely give it a spin.
1: Cool. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It's in the the endless queue. It's in, right. Yeah. Um, the ending. Might get to the end of it by that time uh, quarantine's over, but yeah,
0: the, the ending is shocking. Yeah, um, as far as like where where Jodorowsky wanted to end Dune, which right. is not like the novel, but regardless of that, okay. So the Phantom Menace, considering, and I'm guilty. Yeah, the hype, and I don't I don't know how much the hype was, Fox. Or how much the hype was us, right? But it seemed like I remember a year—not a year, a week—before the movie came out. Came out, I, I believe. Lucas, Lucas came out and said, "Everybody, just calm the fuck down." Right, right. Like this is just a fucking movie. Like right. you, everybody needs to just take a breather. Right. And I remember when he said that, and I think it was on Entertainment Tonight, is when I saw it, and that—that that was my first indication of oh, I think something's wrong.
1: Yeah. Like, maybe I won't. (laughs) I hadn't heard that at the time. Um, The hype was deafening. And to me, that was okay. I I think the hype was part of the fun. Maybe, and now, in retrospect, the movie is so terrible, the hype was all the fun. Um, (laughs) I, I think... Maybe because it came out when I was in just finishing up college, I mean it came out when I was twenty two and it had come out right after the uh, the re releases I, I think that was really the the rise of nerd culture you know or certainly the kind of mainstreaming nerd culture. Um, I, I think you know everyone of our generation grew up loving Star Wars and then maybe kind of forgetting about it for a couple of years, like man, that was the shit, when we were kids, and then like we just saw other movies for fifteen years rather than rewatching Star Wars. And then I think when that came back out in the late 90s, it made us realize, wow, you know what? There really is nothing like Star Wars. Um, okay, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten how much I love that and how much joy that brings. And, you know, they, they brought the toys out again, which, you know, I still have an attic full of. Um, but uh, I, I think Phantom Menace was a part of that. I think it, it kind of made us realize, wow, this this culture is is bigger than I thought it was. Whereas I wouldn't have talked Star Wars to my friends, you know, a year prior, now I'm realizing, oh my god, we all love Star Wars. We have this huge thing in common, this huge thing that unites us. So, I mean, I remember I had a roommate um, who had already finished up his class. I think he actually had already dropped out of college, um, so had gone to work for a video game company. So he maybe had a little bit different uh, time schedule than I did, but he waited online for a week to get tickets. And uh, he had some of his coworkers workers that, um, as soon as they got their tickets, they got back in line just to wait for the show. Um, and I think he did just because it was such a communal thing. You know, I think now I mean, we think it, it's ridiculous. It, I almost felt guilty the last, uh, I think, when Rise of Skywalker came out because I bought my seats six months ahead of time. I showed up five minutes before the movie time. It's like, it feels like cheating somehow. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I remember even for Phantom Menace, I think I got there at noon for like an 11.59 show. Um, and it was fun to just to be in line with all these people who were excited about what was to come. And so I think that's why, you know, maybe Phantom Menace, uh, I give it a little bit of a pass, maybe because I still remember with joy uh, all the things leading up to it. I, mean, I remember the midnight toy release at Toys R Us. Our apartment in Austin was uh, right around the corner from uh, from Toys R Us. So yeah, we walked there, uh, got in line at like 10 o'clock, and then at midnight they opened the doors. And they had those little plastic swimming pools just filled with Star Wars figures. Like they didn't even bother putting them on the shelves because they knew that by one in the morning they were all going to be gone. And so just the excitement of that. And you'd pick up all these characters and like, oh, Darth Maul looks cool. Like well, I don't know who Boss Nass is, but that looks kind of interesting. <laughs> and so you almost kind of got to know these characters before, or at least what they looked like before the movie came out. So I, I just remember that summer of 1999 being so much fun for that reason. Um, so even though the movie doesn't hold up at all, I mean, I, I, still will, will give props to the, um, the, the saber duel between Darth Maul, uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. I mean, that, that still is, uh, a great sequence. That's an
0: amazing labor. Yeah. Lightsaber sequence. I really, that's, that's, that's one of the things to treasure about the film. And yeah. we talked before about how it's, it's really conflicting to see things that you, you like. Yeah and then crossed with a narrative that you're just really not interested in. Right. The DVD that, that I have, I think it's the first release DVD from, from 99, 2000, uh, on the menu. It's, it's them fighting on the skywalk. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I took my family to Disney world and there's a Lego store in Disney world. And and inside the Lego store, there was a, or inside the Disney store at downtown Disney. Um, there was a lightsaber station where you could go and pick out all your components and put them together and you could make whatever lightsabers you wanted. And they had a rotation of all of the lightsaber battles from all of the film, which, which would have been only six by that time. Right. And it just played on a loop. And I just remember sitting there and standing and watching And I don't think that I am upset at any of the lightsaber sequences out of the prequels. No, I think they're very well done. And you know, that guy who coordinated all that, uh, you know, he, he taught fucking Errol Flynn, uh, how to fence. And, uh, he's on, he's on the webisodes on the, the bonus features, of the DVD. And he's, he's talking, uh, to Lucas about how Lucas wants, uh, a more fluid style about how in the first films, it was old men and young boys, and they really didn't know what they were doing or what they were doing was changed by the mechanics of surgery and lost arms and things like this. But this time, and specifically he wanted a more fluid samurai motion, right? Going back to the Kurosawa films and uh, the seven samurai and throne of blood and Yojimbo and uh, Sanjuro and films like that. And I found that intoxicating. Right. I thought that was one of the themes of the film that really worked well together. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sorry to bring this up. What's your take on Anakin?
1: Jake uh, Lloyd. You know, Jake Lloyd, yeah. I mean, I I think it's a little too early to introduce the character. Yeah, you know, I almost wish he would have been introduced a little bit older. Because um, I really just hated everything about him. I hated the yippies. I hated the um the creepy kind of way he he talked to Padme. Um although I guess it's probably less creepy than the way Hayden Christensen talked to her in the attack of the clones. Um but um you know I, I just it none of it sank in with me. None of it sank in with me. Um and and I think the, the entire Anakin arc uh of the prequels, you know, I, I think it's if you're going to appreciate kind of Anakin and and what a good Jedi he was and what a big deal it was for him to turn into Vader, um, you you almost have to supplement the prequels with six seasons of the Clone Wars. Um, You know, I I think that gives a little bit more nuance to Anakin. uh, That gives a little bit more um, weight to the way his powers were kind of developing beyond what the Jedi could control and what they were trying to harness. And, and, and I think that that is absolutely necessary to understand and maybe even believe that, okay, he turned over to the dark side. Because otherwise, if you just believe, okay, turn to the dark side or Padme's going to die, that's weak sauce. I mean, I, I, to me, that's that's not how you come from, you know, one of the greatest Jedi to Darth Vader.
0: There seemed to be a lack of development in that storyline. Yeah, line. Definitely. Yeah, Uh, and I haven't seen The Clone Wars, uh, partially because if it takes place in the prequels, I'm just instantly skeptical and not interested. But everyone that I talk to that have seen The Clone Wars, and particularly Rebels, they they say those two shows
1: are... Are really great. Uh, I don't know if I elevate Rebels quite that high. But <laughs> um, Clone Wars, clone, clone Wars especially, and, and you'll have, you may have to get through some some stinkers early on in the, yeah, in the yeah, series. Yeah. Um, there's a few too many Jar Jar episodes.
0: Same with Community. Uh,
1: um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that because we bailed after like three episodes of Community. So. Oh no, you
0: need to stay okay. in. You well, need so to stay, stay in. in. Yeah, yeah. Give it Abed, try? <laughs> Abed and Donald Glover in uh, season two really take off. Okay,
1: yeah. great. I'll, I'll give it another chance. So, um, but but I think Clone Wars really kind of develops that period. Which really is actually pretty long um, between two and three. We think this several years of a battle. So by the time we actually reach Revenge of the Sith, I mean these Jedi are exhausted. They're Mm -hmm. they're stretched thin. They're they're having to to kind of like think three steps ahead, and you know it makes the the fact that you know Palpatine is kind of playing both sides from the Senate and from the Sith. Uh, right under their noses, I, I think, um, you know, all the more uh, threatening. So, uh, so yeah, I think Anakin's journey, you, you have to supplement it with, with kind of the, the appendix sources, I guess, so to speak, to make that believable.
0: It doesn't seem like a whole lot of time was spent on developing that scene for scene. It's almost like an afterthought.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, the Metachlorians. Mm-hmm. Now, I did see an argument from uh, Rick McCallum, who is the producer. Sure. And Rick McCallum, I remember on the first DVD uh, with, again, the webisodes, he came out and he said, my job is to make sure that George has everything that he wants to tell this story. And apparently that changed. After after the fallout, right. when he came into pre-production for The Clone Wars, he was actually using his position, to go, okay, George, there are a couple of things that you have got to pull back on. Like right. number number one, you've you've got to limit or eliminate jar jar. Yeah. Number two, don't even mention the fucking word metachlorine. Right. Like, right. That is hurting us. Yes. And and I got to give Rick McCallum some street cred. Not apparently. You know, Lucas was suffering from Howard Hughes syndrome. Like, nobody wanted to go tell the king this isn't working out. Right. And I remember when some reporter brought it up to him, Well, when the Clone Wars was about to come out, and, like, you it looks like a lot of people are not satisfied with the product. And he said, well, I think that's media
1: perception, not an audience perception, because they're still going to see the movies. Well, we'll go to see it, even if it's terrible. Right. That's the thing, because talking about a terrible Star Wars movie is as much fun as maybe even more so than talking about a good one.
0: Yeah, well... uh, (laughs) my friend Dave Anderson had this point about rise of Skywalker. Like that's going to make a billion dollars and it doesn't matter if it, if it's good or not. Yeah. And uh,
1: that's sad. Right. When, when that becomes a, a fact. And well, we're that- part of a problem like that, right. <laughs> 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 that the beast needs to be fed uh, even if it's right. junk food.
0: <laughs> yeah. We'll pause for a second. All right. And we're back. So staying on the, the fan of menace, um, did you get a chance to see jumper directed by, uh, God, I want to say it was Doug Lyman.
1: That's the one where like it was Hayden Christensen and like Samuel L. Jackson or something like that. Yeah. I it, okay, no, I did not. I think I, I was aware of it, but I don't think I'd seen it.
0: Surprisingly very good. Okay. I think it, I think it would shock you. Very comic booky. Okay. Uh, very action oriented. And I have to say if you, if you watched that and if you watched a film called, uh, shattered glass. Right. Uh, and Hayden Christensen plays a journalist who gets caught lying.
1: Yeah. Um, I did see that. Um, guy's got some chops. He does. And even, um, it's a dumb, dumb movie, but I mean, life is a house. I mean, he even was, was pretty good in that as, as you know, kind of a, an abused kid. So he, he can act, which leads me to believe that, that, you know, George Lucas directing actors, which I don't think has ever been his strong suit. I don't think anybody would, would put forth that, um, but then he did just kind of disappear, right? I mean, I don't like Hayden Christensen's done
0: like. Well, why would you hire the fun. guy if you saw his three his three most known films?
1: <laughs> well, it's true, and he also has you know probably more money than he knows what to do with just from playing Anakin for three or. Boy, well, I hope movies. he yeah. does. If he
0: doesn't have any acting career over, over that, but <laughs> so you run into the situation that yeah. right? Kristen Stewart bitched about this in the interview, and I used to have a very low opinion of Kristen Stewart because I right. I saw her in Panic Room. A David Fincher film, 2000. She's with Jodie Foster, Dwight Yoakam, Forrest Whitaker, great Jared Leto. Great, great cast. And I really thought she was a powerhouse as a 12-year-old. I thought, oh, my God, this girl is going to rule the world. And then I saw Twilight. Right. And I didn't ever want to fucking see her again. Right. And she's complained about this in interviews, saying that 90% of the people who go see movies have only seen me in those four movies. Sure. And so they don't want to see any of my other movies. Right. It almost makes her think, never should have done those movies. Now, she got a big payday out of it. Right. But she's she's been doing, effectively, until very recently, she's doing independent cinema.
1: She has, and she's done fairly well. She's at, done in very
0: it, well. Yeah. and I, I liked her a lot in uh, American Ultra, mm-hmm. with Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, that was the first one that where I actually... I actually made myself go see Kristen Stewart in a theater again. Right. And I thought, oh, actually, wow, she wasn't that bad. The one that really got me, though, was last year I saw on Netflix, Personal Shopper. Okay. That was drop dead amazing. Okay. I really recommend it. Uh, she really pulls out her chops. And uh, it was, it's so good that Criterion just issued it on right. Blu-ray. Okay, And I just might I might pick that one up because I, I think that... Uh, and she's in almost every single scene. It, it's almost like a single actor play. Right. And uh, they shot it in Paris, I think, in a month. And and it's really profound. You should check it out. But anyway, going back to Hayden Christensen, I think he has the same problem. Sure. Right. And that's, that's really
1: unfortunate. But if you've got a bad director... Yeah. Not much you can do about it. No, you can't. And, and that director-actor combination... Oh, God, at least an Attack of the Clones. I, I I can't think of a worse director actor combination. I'll I'll be bold enough to say that worse than uh, and uh, Lucas then, and then Choy- Jake Lucas, Lloyd. Lucas and yeah, I, I think even worse than Lucas and Jake Lloyd. Because then you Eight can
0: percent. just say, well, he's just a kid. What did you want?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Yeah, and you were talking about the age difference, and, and Natalie Portman was cast for a very specific reason. You know, she was still very young
2: mm-hmm.
0: in Phantom Menace. She was supposed to be young. She was supposed to look like a minor, but right. she still didn't look like someone who'd be interested in a child. Exactly. Yeah. And so theoretically now, Anakin's a, in the Clone Wars, Anakin's a teen, Padme's in her twenties, theoretically. Right. There's this whole confusing situation of, well, I'm not a queen anymore.
1: I'm, I'm a, a senator. senator. Yeah.
0: Well, how the fuck does that
1: work? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, because the queen obviously has a lot of power. I mean, we see that in Attack of the Clones, and in the way Padme has to lead her people. Yeah. Um. So, so, queen is not a ceremonial role in Naboo. Um. It it is very much somebody that leads the people and makes yeah. strategic decisions <laughs> about the defense of their world. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. How is so that so let's not trust hereditary? That to a little girl. Yeah. Uh, number one, and then let's make sure these people then go move on to Congress. I mean, it, it, it's. Yeah, it to this elected body. Yeah, yeah. Which is
0: sort of okay. So you're a monarchy that sends people to an elected body. Like it's it's very confusing. Yeah. And then there's this amazing <laughs> speech in in Attack of the Clones where Hayden's like uh, Hayden or Anakin is saying, you know, we should make the people agree. Yeah. And and she's arguing for democracy. It was like, wait, you're arguing for democracy? You are queen. Right. Right. So. It doesn't seem to be very, at least with the first three films, it was more consistent. Right. There was an empire. There was a rebellion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You didn't see the emperor until right m- movie two.
1: It's almost like the less you knew about, right. yeah, nice and these vague universal politics, and the better. Yeah. The
0: whole Trade Federation right thing. That left me. like you were saying too much plot
1: yeah yeah and i guess that's where rebels and clone wars kind of fill in the gaps a little bit to where you can kind of see some of the behind the scenes struggles between different federations and different worlds Mm. um maybe a world that's struggling to kind of keep its place in the universe uh in, in trade and stuff like that and so the separatists will come in and kind of give them a sweet deal and say all right we'll join join the separatists and you can have these things and um you know then the, the jedi have to come down and say no 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 the separatists are bad and then here's why and we'll fight off some some robots for you and stuff like that so i, I think it, it kind of fills in the gaps a little bit more but god you have to work hard i mean kind of asking your fan base to say okay go watch six seasons <laughs> i mean go literally watch you know 40 it. hours of prep um to, to make this one plot sequence make a little bit more sense you know, it's it's not like Rogue One where you can kind of make this standalone movie and solve a bigger, big plot hole like, oh, OK, well, that's why it's easy to blow up the Death Star. That's an mm. elegant explanation um, instead of, yeah, here's like 40 years of, of, of homework um, to <laughs> make that part not suck as bad. Um, so I think it's it is a lot to ask.
0: Yeah. Well, Rogue One had the interesting theory. I remember the guy who did special effects on the first Star Wars who who wound up being the director of ILM and mm-hmm. still works in the Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, he's He claims that he's the one who pitched it to Kathleen Kennedy while mm-hmm. they were doing the special effects for uh, the pre-prep for uh, The Force Awakens. You know, like, oh, we're going to do a standalone film. And he's like, oh, and what you ought to do is, uh, you know, have mm-hmm. like a team of rebels go and steal the plans for the death star right and she was like oh wow that is a really good movie yeah he yeah. actually he went on to kevin smith's show and he talked about it nice um the weakest link of that series which is a joke it's so much a joke that you find it in family guy mm. you know it's the it's the small thermal exhaust port right below the main port and, and stewie plays darth Vader, right and so it's yeah. like well how's the Death Star going? And some general there is like, well, you know, we're like 99.9% there. And the Stewie says, well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you what that 0.01% is. Right. The general says, well, you know, it's it's kind of an aesthetic uh, choice by the architect. Uh, some <laughs> kind of not really complete. You know, with, uh, it's just the, well, you know, the, the small thermal exhaust port right below the main port, it's only ray shielded. And, you know, so <laughs> you can't hit it with lasers. Everything's fine. But if... If you use photon torpedoes, then theoretically that could go into the exhaust port and then, you know, blow up the whole thing. Right. And then Stewie <laughs> says, okay, well, is there something that we can do about that? And the general's like, well, you know, price is no object. Uh, sure, yeah. We, <laughs> Stewie <laughs> says, well, well, how about until then? Well, we'll just put some more ray shielding on it or maybe some two-by-four or, you know, plywood. Right. or Okay, let's do that. Let's do that. Like That was a brilliant scene well before. Yeah, sure. I don't know if you've ever seen it.
1: I don't think I've seen that one, no. No, I've only just seen a couple of family guys. So, I
0: think it's called Something, Something, Something Dark Side. It's the okay. second one. Because Blue Harvest is the first one. Blue Harvest being the joke because that, that was the fake film title that they created for Jedi. Okay. So they printed that on hats and jackets and T-shirts. And what movie you are working on? And they would say Blue Harvest. And that would pretty much be the end of the conversation.
1: Right. right. Nobody really wants to talk about Blue Harvest. It does, right? doesn't, yeah, it's right. not
0: anything anybody wants to talk about. Uh, but if you say, well, we're working on a, a picture called, at the time, Revenge of the Jedi. Oh, Star Wars film. Yeah. Oh, and so they shut it down pretty quick. So, sure, sure. So the first episode in Family Guy, where they effectively they just did the first uh, Star Wars movie uh, with, with Family Guy jokes in it, they called it Blue Harvest. And they okay. they said in the end that they didn't, they wish they didn't do it. They wish they'd chosen something different because they wound up doing Jedi. Right. And they should have saved the title for yeah. Jedi. Something, 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 Dark Side is the second one, and I don't remember the third one. Regardless, okay. Um, the flat acting, flat directing, mm-hmm. the hysteria. Darth Maul seemed like a very worthy adversary. Yeah. Considering that, you, I mean, there's no way around it, you're going to have to make a sacrifice at the end of every film, which is why I was not particularly surprised when Han Solo died at the end of sure. Force Awakens. Sure. I kind of saw that coming, particularly since I, I do too. Harrison Ford was a little bitter about the whole experience. He, right? He's made it
1: very clear that, that he really, yeah. I mean, he, he thought Han should have died in The End of a New Hope. I mean, I think he's been right. looking for an exit strategy. A, from, you know, wait, yeah. like <laughs> from that t-shirt
0: that, he, that he's worn, he's paparazzi, so he was like, I'm... I'm Rickert, Rick Rick Deckard Han Solo and Indiana Jones and I'm fucking over it. So what it yeah. says on his t-shirt. Um but anyway, so if you if you take into account Obi-Wan dies at the end of the first one, right. Han is basically gone at the end of the second one. Right. You're preparing yourself for someone to die at the end of Jedi. Right it winds up being Anakin.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: Which you wouldn't have a problem with because he's the bad guy, but now you're emotionally attached to him through Luke. Right. So now your feelings are conflicted because Luke saw that good in him and blah, 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 So obviously through the prequels, I just, I just thought, okay, well, you know, someone's going to die at the end.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Ewan McGregor is the Padawan. It's going to make sense if Obi-Wan is, I mean, Obi-Wan on Jin is not going to make it to the end of this picture, right. so I, I was not particularly surprised when he ate it in
1: that fantastic fight scene. I don't know if you realize that that um, came out like probably two weeks before the movie. The soundtrack came out, yes, and, and on the back of it there is a, a, an actual piece of the score. And a track on the CD called "The Death of Qui Gon." No, so, <laughs> that was. Are kind of, you
0: serious? I,
1: I'm dead serious. I could I could show you the track on, on on the CD. So I mean, that actually came out. So you, oh my god, that was kind of spoiled for me by uh, by being an over eager uh, fan of John Williams' oh. music and wanting to get the score. Um, so yeah, but it, it didn't seem like so much of a surprise. And it. but but to be fair, yes, uh, the, the CD spoiled that for me
0: top 10 things never to do in (laughs) pre-prep for your movie
1: yes yes right I guess why the john favreau kind of keeping baby yoda secret was was such a gutsy call because i know disney would have been like can we please sell these now can we please sell these now no no
0: well in not so much phantom menace because the phantom menace script was leaked the movie was leaked the summer before the like a month before it came out online there was there was a lot of a lot of bullshit going on. I I can understand Lucas's frustration sure, and sure. Fox's frustration. Um, I I purposely didn't. You know, I, I felt like the trailers kind of ruined it for me. Sure. Really. So I went in and just saw, I think, just an extension of the trailers. Right. But I forgot my point. My point, and I do have one.
1: Talk about like a Qui-Gon sacrifice, yeah, quite. kind of at the end. Yeah,
0: well, well, I mean, I saw that coming, but I didn't expect Darth Maul to to be eliminated. Yeah, and I felt like like I thought they were setting him up to be the new Vader, right? And so when he's gone, it's I really felt like there was a force that was taken out of the series that was could have could have gone through some major development
1: it could have yeah
0: and instead of having general grievous which was a you know a neat concept i actually liked the character quite much and i thought it was interesting this sort of cyborg human right, hybrid right. with the uh, spinning blades and everything i thought that was a neat concept but i think it would have been more interesting to keep darth Maul through all three of those it sacrifice him at the end of the third film would have been more emotionally impacting because then, then every time he shows up, he's like, oh my God, it's that Darth Maul guy. Right. General Grievous wasn't that, wasn't as threatening as Darth Maul.
1: Right. And I think, you know, that's when you really kind of get into the the whole Sith mythology, which th- the rule of two, I kind of feel like it, it, it's something that the saga has kind of conveniently either held itself to or ignored at kind of different times. That There always has to be two. And I know some of the comic books kind of filled it in where you can kind of see, um, Darth Vader, you know, like even Emperor Palpatine, although he had his one Sith with Darth Vader uh, he had his one apprentice he was still kind of trying out a couple other people he was kind of like training some sub-apprentices that if they get strong enough can overtake Vader and and be the new apprentice so that's kind of something that goes on behind the scenes but um, if you're a fan of of Darth Maul then then I won't spoil anything, but you know he he does make a reappearance in, in some of the Clone Wars
0: okay, fair enough in regard to the clone wars the film um who paid for all these clones and where do they what were they to be used for originally
1: yeah so i guess a slightly more efficient um force than those uh you know battle droids and so i guess it's the um the galactic senate i guess not a galactic republic at that point so so just kind of peacekeeping across the valley uh, the galaxy that the uh, the Galactic Senate pays for, so it's, it's you know everyone 's tax dollars hard at work uh, <laughs> coming up there, um, but obviously I think there was a, there was a mystery that I think the initial order was seemed to be placed, and the production of the clones started before by, the a, by a previous the Jedi master right, or something, or something yeah. like that which um and nobody
0: knew about it because he didn't tell anybody about it
1: yeah exactly. it
0: seems to be a huge expenditure of tax dollars without any oversight
1: right and a Jedi salary is probably not uh, not very high I mean, right it's if, if it is kind of like a priest or a monastic role then you're probably getting paid in ways other than actual cash so I, I can't see how you confront the creation of an entire army yeah um by yourself
0: so where I thought this was leading to was this clone army was actually paid for by Darth Sidious, and that it was in
1: the idea of uh, of a coup was always in the mind of the Sith. I think I think so. Is he was laying the groundwork that you right. needed to have an army that um, maybe could give the, the Jedi or the Galactic Senator, I guess whoever you feel like is in charge, um, false confidence. Hmm. Um, But to kind of plant that little backdoor program into their minds, which I guess you can do with clones and maybe you can't do with stormtroopers um, to where once you execute order 66, Hmm. okay, you, you control and you, you kind of flip the tables. So yeah, it was definitely kind of a long con on, on Palpatine's part. And um, you know, if you read kind of some of the backstory of his character, he comes, he's he's very wealthy before he, um, you know, started to develop these, these dark side powers. Um, So it really has been kind of a long deliberate ascent not just through the the Sith, um, but also through kind of the aristocracy of, of his homeworld and and uh, you know kind of the galaxy and the banking clan and stuff like that. so he probably would have had the financial resources to to put that order in a couple of years ahead of time.
0: Not very clear in the films, so. no,
1: not at all, not at all. And you um, never do come back to this cypher Diaz that, that placed the right.
0: order and and when the clones turn it's it's like this command from the top. But they think it's just a Republican order. Mm-hmm. They don't. They're not in on the conspiracy.
1: No, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely kind of some sub-programming. I, I did feel yeah. like it was kind of a this is what we do now or something like that. It's There's, like okay, yeah,
0: yeah, we're just going to kill the Jedi, and it, it just seems like Commander Cody just has a little bit more thought in his head than to just you'd think that. You know, I, I mean, I'm not going to debase it by saying, you know, I was just following orders.
1: That whole—that's why I, I feel like it was maybe some kind of subprimal thing that I guess is possible in clones, but right, not in, in humans or, um, or, or I guess the, the stolen children that develop into stormtroopers in the, uh, the the sequel trilogy. The Yoda fight. Hmm. I mean, I was
0: l- like everything. Yeah, I just sat through this thing for ninety minutes and was not entirely happy with it. And then the Yoda fight happens, and it takes me from, you know, a subpar feeling to an over enjoyment that yeah. it's very hard to experience.
1: Yeah, I just thought that was masterfully done. It really was, and and very well put. I, I think it was it was just kind of like. I don't know, like, apathy through the whole movie. Um, it's like, some things I like, some things I didn't like, but I'm kind of feeling the the, the meter's kind of tipping this way towards the left of kind of unsatisfaction. And then the Yoda fight. Yeah. Um, and it really was masterfully done. And that that's one area where, you know, I think the CG did perfectly blend the character. Um, you know, I, I think Yoda walking around, I'd rather have a puppet than CGI. Just right. because I think uh, there's magic in that. And... And because I think, you know, Frank Oz and and the entire Jim Henson legacy is just unmatched in in 20th century entertainment. Um, But to see him fight and fight so much faster Hmm. uh, and acrobatically than any other Jedi we'd seen, you know, it was a moment where you could see, that's why he's a master. Hmm. Okay. And then to kind of see him immediately return to a cane, you're like, Ah, oh, so that's how he conserves energy, too. Is, right. He's uses very little, and that's why he has a walking stick. But when he needs it, he can save up a ton of energy. So, so yeah, I think it it, it opened up the entire backstory of Yoda. You know, why is he revered? Not just for being old and wise and being around 900 years, but because... Because magazine. he is.
0: Because he is the greatest warrior. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was totally in with that. And there's a, there's a webisode on the Clone Wars disc... Where you see Lucas directing the animators and telling them very cautiously, like, like, this has the potential to be silly. We do not want it to look silly. Yeah. So be very careful how you you put this together. Right. Because we don't want to make a joke out of Yoda. And I, I think that was extraordinarily successful. Yeah. Unfortunately, they couldn't do that for the rest of the film. Right. And I don't think there's anything that Lucas could have done to stop that except take himself out of the director's seat. Right. Which I have to say he was very successful at doing with empire and Jedi. Right. And I think that if he had only done that for these three films, he could have at the very
1: least mitigated a whole lot of problems. I think he could have, I think, you know, if you know, and you you have to trust Lucas to some extent as a star Wars fan, you have to give the man some credit for the vision of this whole story. You can't just dog on him as a director. Um, But I think even if you trusted him as kind of a story builder for the prequels, you could say, okay, here's kind of what has to happen. Here's the arc that I'd like to see. All right, now let's see what what you can do with it as a director. Um, You know, I think he's still a strong enough storyteller to think that, you know what, it might have turned out okay, even if he wasn't involved as a director. Yeah. Um, I certainly think that there would have been any number of directors that could have handled the delicate balance of computer effects and actually human beings much better than...
0: If it was George 80% ben. of Jedi, we would have been calling it a victory. Yeah. You know, exactly. it didn't have to be as good as Jedi.
1: Right. It right. just
0: had to come close. Right, exactly. And it didn't. It didn't, no. Yeah, none of them did. So, then the political aspect of the movie, I'm watching the time here. Uh, you're either with me or against me. The movie came out in 2003. Right, right. There are a lot of desert shots right? and warfare shots. Some of them, particularly there's a scene of the clones surrounded by a dust storm. Right. Letting off their blasters. That just looks amazingly badass. And at the same time, I I cannot see it as anything but a direct criticism of the second Gulf War. Sure. And just instantly i'm trying to use trying to take myself out of the fact of what my voting history is and and what my propensity as a voter is leaning a little bit to the right but anakin's line you're either with me or against me it's a complete lift off of george bush sure. everybody knew that when they watched it but, right, right but if a jedi can't tell what's wrong and what's right. Yeah. What the fuck use is having a Jedi around? Right,
1: them. exactly.
0: And and Obi-Wan saying uh nobody looks at the world in 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 black and white, Anakin, you know, there there are gray areas. I'm like what? Yeah. I, a Jedi sees a gray area?
1: Jedi seems to be pretty cut and dry.
0: <laughs> I yeah. That to me, you know, I was hoping that the Jedi order would would be doing a whole lot more than the Kissinger-esque shit that my country's <laughs> been doing for 40 years. Right, right, exactly. You know, if we're going to go ahead and support this dictator because he's not a communist. And we all know that he's a cutthroat motherfucker. Right. But we're going to go ahead and give him a billion dollars because we, he's our, he's our asshole. Right, as, right. As right. somebody in the Carter administration said about the Shah of Iran, right? This guy's an asshole. Yeah, but he's our asshole. Right. Please don't tell me that the Jedi are no good than the C.I. fucking A. right. I was hoping for more than that. So, so it might be a, I think it's an open critique of the Iraq war and I don't think that it works.
1: Yeah. I don't think it works either. And and it's, I'd forgotten about that. I think I I, I did pick up on that at the time. I think it was hard not to, when we were kind of reliving the, uh, the failures of the, the Iraq war, um, you know, every day on the news. Um, but I think seeing it now, it's like, I, I, I I'd forgotten about that a little bit. Um, You know, what I'm reminded about is, you know, I remember George Lucas's, you know, kind of harsh critique of Force Awakens. He's like, well, if it was me and I'd I'd go to more worlds. I mean, that's what people want to see is more worlds, more creatures, different things that you hadn't seen before. So I kind of took it as, you know, when you look at some of these planets, I think like Geonosis is where like the the attack of the clones took place. Um, Yeah, it was desert, but it was also kind of this rocky kind of outcrop with all these hives underneath, uh, I, I think I was willing to roll with it because at least it looked a little bit different than a lot of the other worlds that we'd seen on screen in the Star Wars saga. I mean, I know Tatooine is is that that kind of Saharan desert kind of look because it was shot on location, in yeah, Morocco, desert. right? Um, but um, you know, all these other worlds that were completely computerized, they could live Tunisia, other. sorry, it's Tunisia, yeah. Um, so I mean, I guess I, I thought it looked different enough, but but yeah, there, there's definite. Um, definite critiques in there that i guess maybe don't bother me as much now um as it did back then but but to kind of go with the the, the kind of whole gray area maybe that's that's why saga feels a little bit more authentic and maybe a little bit more hopeful is is that you know it is pretty much cut and dry you know the empire's bad the rebellion is good um and that kind of fit in with a lot of movie making and storytelling kind of up until the late 70s, um, you know, where we kind of saw, started seeing the rise of the antihero and, and things like that. And I know that really kind of tended to take off in the 90s. I mean, by the by the 90s, by the time the prequels were coming out, we were used to watching The Sopranos and, and things like that, where, OK, the main character is not a good person. And we have the antihero is, is almost like more popular than the actual hero uh, in storytelling. And so maybe I, I almost feel like to make, to tell a story in that era, they had to kind of work in, in gray. And um, yeah, maybe it's more telling of the time, but maybe it's also less enduring for that reason, too. Yeah.
0: No, that's a good point. Uh, it was, I, I I think that a good anti-war film about the second Gulf War has yet to be made. Right. And I think there have been a lot of attempts. And, and if you if you think about the the legacy of Vietnam in cinema, I mean, how just uh, when when the Vietnam War was on, fucking nobody in Hollywood wanted to touch it except no. for John Wayne, and it was a goddamn disaster. And they said never again. Right.
1: It took fifteen years to get a good one. I mean, I know Apocalypse yeah. Now is is seventy nine, kind of a Vietnam film, but I think it's it's also you know very much that that kind of timeless Joseph Conrad story. I think sure. you know to kind of get into the Oliver Stone ones, which. I mean, what platoons? eighty six, 86 so, I mean, you're, you're Well, the Deer years. Hunter is seventy nine, and the That's Deer true. one got an
0: Oscar. Yeah, um, but you know that was called fascist trash by a lot of people, like Peter Arnett, uh, the reporter, and so forth. And uh, but again, there was like a there was like a delay. Yeah, you know, and I'm hoping that there will be a delay. I mean, I I supported the war. Mm-hmm. I thought the occupation was a fucking three ring circus. Right. From the get go, right, and it's it's 15 years after the occupation, and it's probably about well, when was when did Obama pull troops? 2009, 2010s right. when the battalions started coming out. We still have 5,000 troops there, right? You know, I was I was hoping by now somebody would come out with something really pertinent to that to that era, right? And Hollywood just doesn't seem interested. Well, right now they're just right. trying to survive, but right you know, exactly up until now. So Revenge of the Sith, whenever you introduce a child, and of course Phantom Menace has a child, uh, what's that film with Mila Jovovich, the badass comic book, uh, Ultraviolet? Ultraviolet. Okay. I don't know if you saw that. No. That, that's got a child. Like anytime you have a child in an action film, just like hold on because it really tends to slow down the plot. Right. A, lot, a lot of times people don't like having a kid in the middle of a firefight. And here we have a, a pregnant Padme really starting to slow down the action. Right. And I I don't think she was used very effectively. And I know that we're talking about laser swords and talking fish people. But right, right. The finale between Obi-Wan and Anakin it was too fantastic for me. Yeah. And now that's sort of become like a hallmark of over overproducing a scene. People kind of use that, right. that fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan as all right. now. You just, it's total overboard. It was overboard,
1: but, uh, I, I went with it. I, I think maybe cause I was looking for a bright spot in the movie that I, I wasn't finding otherwise. Um, and you know, I, I, think Revenge of the Sith wasn't horrible. I mean, I, I, think I, I, I liked it the best out of the prequels. Um, I, I think it tried to do an awful lot in in two and a half hours, um, but there were some set pieces that I really liked, and um, I had, had more Obi Wan. Which I mean, he was my favorite. I, I love you, McGregor's Obi Wan. I think you know he's all, all The prequels, so he's giving him as much screen time as he had, and I think you could really kind of see in in that movie that the toll that things were taking on Yoda, on on Mace Windu, on the on the decision makers and stuff like that. You know, I, I didn't feel like Anakin had enough. Um, enough motivation to kind of turn to the dark side and and so as much as i kind of liked seeing palpatine whisper in his ear to try to turn him um you know it just didn't feel right to me so i was looking for a bright spot and and i think i i did enjoy that 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 uh fight scene with uh, with him and obi-wan but um i think as far as just the way things ended up with anakin and padme and and her dying of i guess just a broken heart um, didn't quite sit well with me, and and I've actually you know given a lot more thought over time, and and I think um the rise of Skywalker has actually kind of made it a little bit easier to kind of um, put a cap on this theory is is that you know really this was kind of a long con on Palpatine's part, and if he can control midi in a way to where he can bring people back from the dead, um. Then, maybe you know he can conceive life when we talk about uh, you know, Anakin 's virgin birth, and maybe he can kill people from afar just with by controlling midichlorians. so maybe you know Palpatine could be the one that ultimately causes Padme to die because i don 't think just that little bit of force choke that Anakin did was well, enough somehow. to kill her in childbirth and not harm the kids, um, and even the medical droid says well there 's nothing wrong with her physically; she 's dying of a broken heart. I wish they hadn't used that. Um, but um, so I, I think there's, there was something going on and I think it would have been cooler if that wasn't just, you know, a fan theory. If that was something that you could really see evidence of. And I think it would make the relationship with Palpatine and Vader all the more interesting because I think you would see Vader as as evil as he was really being used And and, and being almost like a victim here. Like, okay, Palpatine used him, destroyed his life, you know, killed the love of his life, and now has him doing his bidding. Uh, I think it would almost add kind of another layer to, to Vader as you'd start to view the, the saga going on.
0: I, I agree. And in, in the beginning of Jedi, Leia says that she, she had memory of her real mother. Right, right. And remembered her being sad and so forth. So I, I was going into the film thinking they, that they had no, survived. Yeah. Uh, she had survived. And I was really disappointed when she died. Um, I thought that the, the trauma was going to be we have to separate the children. Yeah. So that Vader won't find them. Right. Which one, it's like a Sophie's Choice type of ending. Which one do you have to give up? Right, exactly. And uh, Luke being the one that he was going to definitely look for, uh, being the male, she wanted to hide him the most. And so she entrusted him to Obi-Wan and then she took... Right. Um, uh, Leia to live in the household of the Organas right. on, on uh, Alderaan as as effectively a servant girl, just like she had been playing when she was queen. Right. She had played servant girls before. Right. So that's that's where I thought things were were headed. Right. Sinner Organa basically shielding uh, Padme for the rest of her her life, which apparently is going to be pretty short. Right, and right. that was really disappointing to to see the character arc stop in such a
1: way. Right, that you you don't remember her because I mean her her mother was alive up until Alderaan exploded. Her her adopted mother, mm-hmm. um, and and so that doesn't quite fit. Um, but what I had more trouble with was like if you're gonna hide Luke, like why do you take him to <laughs> to <laughs> and give him to the basically your stepfather, right? Uh, or your stepfather's, I guess maybe maybe he had he had died by then, um, so I, I guess your your first cousin, like in in the house that your mom. Well, the like relatives think, were really
0: confusing. Like who's Lars and who's Owen? Who's like these people that were showing up? That wasn't very clear.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not and and I, I remember thinking, like even before Revenge uh, of the Sith came out, I'm like, so like how, how's this Uncle Owen thing gonna work out? Because like Anakin is, doesn't have any siblings, and then like okay, well I guess his mom remarries. Um, you know, Mister Lars, and 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 then this happens. But that also kind of leads me to, well, then, yeah, why leave Luke with him? Because wouldn't that be a pretty obvious place for Vader to look? It's like, let me see. With the that. same last name? Yeah, exactly. There's somebody with my last name on Tatooine. Like, we're living with my my cousin. Um, I, I think he'd be dead by three. I wouldn't think he'd survive to, to be. Eighteen and, and fighting the rebellion, but
0: uh, there is um, yeah. uh, Marvel started uh, reprinting the Star Wars comics. Yeah, uh, shortly after the Force Awakens started, and I, I of course got into them, and I love the Star Wars, the new Star Wars run and the the Han Solo run and the Princess Leia run. I think is brilliant. There's this, there's this great um, um, chain of Obi Wan storylines. Yeah, and it's Obi Wan in exile. He's yeah. on Tatooine and all of the underhanded shit that he's got to do in order to keep Luke underground. Right. That's, that's the plot of the Obi-Wan run. And it's really, it's really quite good. Well, I guess it
1: goes back to, I mean, does Vader think that any of the kids survived Padme's death? Or does he just assume that the kid, the kids died? Right. That's not explained either. So, so then is it a revelation in in the
0: first film or actually, we, we don't know when he discovers,
1: I think there's a kind of in that same comic book re-release. I I think there's something to where, there's a bounty hunter that's kind of looking around for like kind of fighting out people in the rebellion. And and somehow he discovers that there's somebody named Luke Skywalker.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. So in the the new comic book run, there's, there's a plot line where um, he's looking for the victor of the battle of Yavin. He wants to find out who blew up. the the death star and punish them. Right. And then he finds out it's a pilot and the rebels called Luke Skywalker. And so it's the name that keys him. It's like, that's, it's gotta be my son.
1: And so I kind of took that to be, you know, okay. He didn't know his kids survived, Right. Because otherwise, I mean, he spends the last, you know, the next probably three to five years after, um, the battle of Yavin. Yeah. I guess after the battle of Yavin, no, before that, um, like after, I guess Revenge of the Sith, kind of, as soon as he's Darth Vader, he spends the first three to five years hunting down every Jedi. Right, you know, right. Because the Purge didn't get them all. The Order right. 66 didn't get them all. So... Destroy all the temples. So he goes in and just destroys all the Jedi. And he's fairly efficient at it. So I would think that if he knew that he had little toddlers out there, that he'd be able to find them as easily as he's found you know these hiding Jedi. So I can only think that he didn't know that his kids survived. Um, and so Luke's appearance is a surprise to him.
0: What's your take on the younglings?
1: Uh, on one hand, I kind of applaud them for going there because the prequels hadn't really been willing to go anywhere dark. Um, it had to happen. I mean, it, it it absolutely had to happen and, and you had to believe that he was capable of that to buy into the transformation. Um, so yeah, I kind of almost look at it like a necessary thing.
0: Well, I thought that was going to be the key that pushed Padme away. Like once she found right. out she had done that, then that that had to be the total break with him. Like right. I can't see you again. I can't talk to you again. I want I want nothing to do with you. Right. And it wound up she that wasn't it. Right. She 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 jumps onto a spaceship and goes and tracks him down after right. that. Right. It's
1: like killing kids. We can we can work through
0: that. We can work through yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Genocide right. is is okay. Is like right. You know. Right. So I found that difficult. I'm glad we we settled all of that. Um, The Force Awakens had three screenwriters. Kathleen Kennedy initially hired Michael Arndt Mm -hmm. to do a screenplay. The screenplay was about, effectively, three new cast members. And Han and Luke and Leo were backgrounders who punctuated it. Sure. That wasn't good enough for her. So she handed it over to JJ Abrams, who was the director who, who said, thanks question mark. Right. And then immediately went running to Lawrence Kasdan who wrote empire strikes back with George Lucas. And they reinserted the characters and decided that this was going to be a continuing story mm-hmm. of the three characters Han, Luke, and Leia, and that the three additional characters Ray, Poe, and Finn would share screen time at the same time. And I think we, I think that immediately, that decision to include six characters
2: mm-hmm. and
0: share screen time between them all had a dramatic impact on the series. The first, the first of which was you immediately lose your droids. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the fuck C3PO and R2 are. Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead right. in, in this three movie set.
2: Sure.
0: You've got, you've got this really cute ball running around, which yeah. I, I appreciate yeah. and, I, and I like, and the cone faced dog in the third movie, which right. I thought was fine thought maybe if you had paired them off in the first movie, right. n- then you could recreate that. But then why recreate it if you have the original? There's,
1: there's already so many things that are being there's, recreated. Right, yeah.
0: yeah. So, so all this kind of stuff going on, uh, it, it is a remake of the first film.
1: Right, right, very much so. Which,
0: you know, Terminator 2 is a remake of Terminator. So I I don't have a particular problem with that just doesn't seem to be done very well now the first i we we know that when you fire a writer in a movie this big mm-hmm. you've got fucking problems right and so and as i understand it lawrence Kasdan and jj J. abrams said they had they had overlapping vacations they were flying all over the world and they were and so they were traveling together uh, trying to solve all these problems so they they weren't locked in a, a writing room in hollywood right they were they were on they were jet setting when they when they put this thing together piecemeal so I went to go see it Thursday night first showing seven o'clock right um that first hour which is Michael Arndt's first hour mm-hmm. I gotta say it's pretty seamless it is it's it a is. really strong hour yeah and it's almost like I, the irony of the situation: the minute Han and Louis show up, Louis Chewie, when minute Han and Chewie show up at the hour five mark, I think it is, yeah, is when the whole thing goes to shit.
1: You know, I, I read your your essay, your your, your blog post about that because I hadn't thought about it that way, but it does definitely seem like a shift. To I don't know if it's necessarily just fanboying because. Um, I think there was some kind of emotional satisfaction to seeing Han and Chewie a little bit older, a little bit more um, little r- rough for wear, rough for wear. And certainly a Wookiee's lifetime is like 300 years or so. So why can't, you know, Chewie keep continuing on? Um, but yeah, you know, I do kind of wonder what would have been if they could have just told their own brand new story with maybe some Easter eggs that touch back in. Um, without necessarily so being so beholden to what what happened in the past, um, and I know eventually we'll get there, and and I look forward to that as a Star Wars fan is is knowing that they've well they've said anyway you know who knows um, they've said that they're done with a Skywalker saga, so so the next Star Wars movies, uh, at least the next Star Wars trilogies will tell a different story, and and I look forward to that because I think that's maybe where they can be a little bit more creative instead of trying to Kind of find ways to to tie back into that universe, but I think what was, I don't know if it was bad, but it was definitely weird that almost every plot point in the Force Awakens was an exact mirror of A New Hope. I mean, let's go find the one weakness in the uh, the planet killing right. base, um, <laughs> and, uh, and and blow the thing up. So it. Yeah, I think there was another part of me that was kind of like The Force Awakens where or kind of like The Phantom Menace where I think I had the rose-colored glasses on for a little bit, although I was, I think, a little bit more jaded at the time. So I, th- I think I was maybe a little bit quicker to, to pick apart the, uh, the, the movie. But I remember my impression being, you know, so excited going into this, maybe tempering my expectations a little bit because I'd gotten burned a little bit before. And the first time I, when it ended, I was like, wow, okay, that's a lot. Um, I think it's mostly positive, but some negative. Like I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly how I feel about it, and I think that's been kind of the fanboys' dilemma. I think with with new Star Wars, is we're not going to like it as much as the first one. Is it fair to compare these to the old saga? Um, can we just enjoy them for what they are, or is picking them apart kind of the fun? um and is is that kind of what we've reduced ourselves to um you know because i i can't think of another movie where i enjoy talking about the movie as much as i do watching it but that is absolutely the case with star wars and i'm sure you found this too is you know kind of a maybe a white male of a certain age you know is kind of expected and assumed to know quite a bit about star wars um and we do um and and most of us have an opinion about uh, the new movies and about the whole overarching story thing. So I think that it's been kind of a a fun way of connecting with people. Um, but but I don't know. I I think if maybe we kind of don't get the Star Wars movie we want, we get the Star Wars movie we deserve. Um, and and maybe that's kind of what the sequels are. They're like they're all right, but they're bound to be a disappointment. Yeah. Well, did you did you read how I thought it was going to end? I did. Yes. And so. I think that probably would have been a lot more interesting.
0: With Luke Uh, showing up at the end of Force Awakens. Yeah. Trying to save, kind of like a recreation of Bespin. Right. And again, like Bespin, he fails to save Han. Right. Right. Uh, But he saves Leia. And then you have this absolute badass, batshit crazy scene where he's disposing of stormtroopers like they're garbage and... And it's Kylo Ren who is on the run, yeah, trying I mean,
1: to get away. I definitely think Luke Skywalker deserved more than just a ten-minute sequence as a force projection fighting on uh, on Crait, um, and and you could have done a lot with him, and he could have been a mentor to Ray, you know, in in the field, and you could have seen, you know, what is, I think you could certainly believe this at the end of. Uh, Return of the Jedi, that Luke Skywalker is the chosen one, is is the greatest Jedi um, at the time I guess he's the only Jedi but you know that, that he is kind of all time great Jedi, but it seems like no, nah, I mean, Yoda Mace Windu, Anakin Obi-Wan are certainly more powerful than, than Luke ever got to be
0: well that that scene where uh the lightsaber passes Finn and it hits Rey's hand and it comes on, and you all of a sudden you spent an hour and a half getting to this point, and now you realize she is going to be the focus of the force for the next three films, right, not right. Finn and not Poe and as a viewer, that hits you as a Star Wars fan it hits you, and you feel like oh that was a perfect setup
1: it was right i,
0: I thought that was and then, and then that musical cue comes in from John Williams. The, the, the tones that, uh, nah, nah, and then, the, oh my, it's the force tone. All they needed to do was to hold that for maybe half a bar or longer mm-hmm. to, to get our emotion all the way through it. And they didn't, they cut it short because they wanted to get back into the action. And I thought it was a complete waste of a, a perfectly good moment that people would, would have remembered for forever. That's, that's bad enough. And, and, but the whole, like you were keying into the entire Luke Ray structure and the denial of what every fan wanted was, was for Luke to train Ray and the specific idea of Abrams and Kennedy and Johnson agreeing that that wasn't going to happen. Right. That was a, that was probably the worst mistake of the series. Right. And we're not talking about ninety percent of Star Wars fans expecting that to happen. We're talking about a hundred percent of Star Wars oh, fans yeah. expecting that to happen.
1: Absolutely. And
0: that was that was a a very bad idea to to deny that. And of course, Ryan Johnson's got this bullshit argument where, because uh, uh, you know, Mark Hamill's been very vocal about, look, I'm a I'm a hired gun. I'm an actor. I'm I'm here to play a role. I don't get a say in where the character goes. Like I disagree with that's where the character is going, sure. but that's not my. That's my not my take. They should have listened to Mark Hamill,
1: exactly, because because he knows Luke Skywalker who and, who and, better. Yeah, and so I think that the, the take that Ryan had was sort of unexpected, um, and and so if if you want to give credit for him making the bold, unexpected choice, then then by all means he did make one. Um, but yeah, God, you know I, I do kind of wanted a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to see what but Luke could do uh, against the the First Order. Um, no, that, that wasn't probably the, the biggest problem I had with The Last Jedi. I oh, what was the biggest
0: problem you had with The Last <laughs> uh, Jedi?
1: You know, I, I think maybe, I think there's something to be said for the three act structure. You know, I, I think as it's certainly kind of, you're telling a story. And so I, I get the sense that, you know, Ryan Johnson was almost trying to just kind of blow the whole thing up. Um, and, and so I remember walking out of, um, The Last Jedi thinking, okay, so there's really not much of... The, what's the Rebellion called there? The Resistance. There's really not much of the Resistance left, but there's really not much of the First Order left. I mean, right. they they kind of blew their wad there on the crate, And so now you have Kylo Ren, who's kind of reeling, and then you have Hux, which, you know, is, is really ineffectual. Um, I think the Rebels can take him pretty easily. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to restore the stakes in the third movie. Yeah. Well, I guess you just kind of go full tilt and just say, well, let's res- resurrect the Emperor, and here's a whole bunch of... Uh, you know, star destroyers just magically rising from the ether that are at your disposal now, so you almost kind of had to do that to return to the three act structure of well, what are we going to care about in the third movie right the the little stable boy that, that can suddenly move his broom uh, <laughs> you know? uh so so I think that that's kind of where where it lost me um I think it was a lot of unnecessary stuff um I mean, I think cant of was just.
0: That's a bad idea. So Start awful, stop awful. is a bad yeah, idea.
1: That was that was terrible.
0: Um but at first I, I liked the idea of effectively a bottle episode. Yeah. Where the entire the entire film was set up to take place during the chase. Yeah. And I was completely okay with that. And so when they left the chase, it was like what the what's going on here? And right. then to find out that the chase had nothing to do at all with the plot of the film right. was extremely frustrating. I, this movie is way over two hours. Yeah. And you spent 25 minutes about a topic I could give a shit about with a character that pops up and apparently Benicio Del Toro's character right. was going to be uh, Lando. But, okay. But um, Billy D. Williams is having health problems at the time. Couldn't right. take the role, changed it, got Benicio Del Toro. Should should have just canceled it.
1: Interesting, because then he would have had. I guess if you follow the same arc that Benicio's character did, mm-hmm. selling um, I guess right. Finn and right who was was it Rose that was with him. Um,
0: yeah, another character I don't care about. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not anti Rose. Like there are some people that just like hate on Rose. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not one of those. I just I, I find her presence confusing. What is she giving there? Her
1: nothing to do. Right. And, and and from what I understand about Rise of Skywalker, she did have a lot more to do, uh, but it involved interaction with uh, with Carrie Fisher yeah and so when she died they're like okay well what do we do now you're kind of stuck here with what we can cut together from previous movies Uh,
0: that's that's i mean
1: that that's unfortunate but it's making the best of the situation so so yeah i think you have um this kind of unnecessary story here um this this distraction from uh, like you said the chase i mean i think that that would have been kind of a more interesting film but you know what i think you kind of mentioned something with with um the rise of Skywalker and kind of like that rushing the moment of discovery that, that Ray has some force powers. I I don't know if this started with Jedi. I I You could definitely see it throughout the prequels is to where George Lucas just loves multiple storylines going on at once, or certainly as it pertains to battle and switching back and forth. And I think it's easy to kind of lose the thread through that. You know, I think it was a lot easier when, you know, in A New Hope where you just see, okay, maybe the Yavin control base and then what's going on in the Death Star trenches. I mean, it's just kind of pretty much back and forth between those two things. Be a little bit of Tarkin on the Death Star, but you're really just kind of intercutting just maybe two, mostly two, but maybe three perspectives. Whereas with the prequels, I mean, some of those battles, like the Battle of Naboo, I mean, there are so many different perspectives that they're jumping back and forth between that you really don't get to stay on one long enough to enjoy the moment. And I think they just kind of carried that over into, um, the force awakens and, and probably to some extent, the other ones, which they're trying to tell too many stories at once. And that's almost become embedded in, in the, the, star Wars storytelling structure. And, and because of that, you rush the moments. You don't really care about any of the moments. Cause you're aware that this is a bigger battle, but, um, I think you're a little worse for wear for it. Yeah. I, I think that if they were capable
0: editors and storytellers like mm. Peter Jackson, right. like for instance, the fellowship of the ring, you start off with everybody for three hours. Right. And then in the two towers, you split up into two groups. Yeah. And then in uh, return of the King, I think there's like five different things going on, sure. but you can keep it in your head because by then you've got nine hours with them. Right.
2: Right. right?
0: But they, they didn't really care to follow that
1: formula. Right. Or, or they they failed to to edit it, as well. And the, you know, in the key point of Helm's Deep in the two towers, you don't cut to suddenly Frodo. You're like, no, we're going to stay right, with stay, we're stay with Helm's Deep. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there's a little bit of that going on. And, yeah, it probably is an editing issue. Well,
0: that's why I admire uh, Game of Thrones. Whenever there was a battle in Game of Thrones, they didn't fuck cut away no, from the battle. The entire episode was in the battle. You know?
1: exactly. the battle of the Bastards and then that winter battle. It, it seemed like every, the penultimate episode of almost every season was yeah. a huge fucking battle. That's right. No, that,
0: it, was, it was very well done.
1: Um, and,
0: now The Last Jedi, correct me if I'm wrong... I mean, I do believe, I fervently do believe that this has the greatest lightsaber battle in the history of Star Wars. Yeah. In that throne room. I'll give you that. So much so that Game of Thrones copied it. Right. In the Winter Battle. Right. Uh, Ray's move to take out the Imperial Guard is the same move that Arya Stark uses to take out the Winter King. Spoilers. Right. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the theater watching that just thinking, I'm going to remember this yeah. for the rest of my life. Right. And there's there's only one, like one second or two seconds in that entire fight that that looked off and it was when they go into slow-mo and then they cut away. And I was like,
1: don't fucking
0: cut away. I, from right, killing. right, exactly. Uh, but the, the red and the representation of blood yeah. and all of that. It was a
1: great color palette. And I think you had... You know, combatants that, that could hold their own. Um, I, I think stormtroopers that can't hit the mark—we're um, kind of used to that. It's, it's kind of a joke. Um, well, especially it was, in the Mandalorian. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you can't <laughs> forget about that scene. Um, you, you know, you, there's never too much danger. You can't think of like very many lightsaber battles with, um, not to say other Jedi's or other Sith or other wielders of a, a blade-like weapon. Where they were much match for them, but here, you know, Rey and and uh, and Kylo had to fight their way through some pretty elite forces, um, and to do it back to back, to, to kind of do it um, with with different weapons thrown in, I, I I thought it was probably you're right probably the most exciting lightsaber battle in the saga.
0: Yeah, and and the the finale of of Luke showing up. Johnson has said, well, you see, it ends the way that all the fans want it to end. He does finally show up and save the day. But that's only half of it. Yeah. We wanted him to train Ray, And like you said, in the field. And so I thought it was going to set up like another uh, Anakin-Obi-Wan situation. Sure. That's what we all wanted.
1: Well, if you think that Luke became a Jedi pretty fucking quickly. Look at Rey. Yeah. I uh, I mean, you know, what instruction did she get? Like right. none. And now she's, you know, more powerful than Palpatine.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I don't know how much of this is trained and I don't much how much of this is instinctual or how much of this is you know kind of chlorians, right? But I've got to think that to to get to be an elite Jedi, you have to have some training. I mean my goodness, they they would take kids as as toddlers and 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 train them in the academy, and and then still have an apprenticeship before <laughs> they would be a powerful Jedi. And both Luke and and even to a greater extent, Ray, pick it up really, really quickly. Yeah, um, because the plot calls them to. Well,
0: yeah, and and again, that that scene at the end of Rise of Skywalker, where uh, she saves Ray. I'm sorry, she saves Ren. Ren comes back. Double lightsabers fall into their double hands. And then the camera moves about 45 degrees to the right and their profiles line up and they both turn on lightsabers at the same time. It's like the Knights of the Old Republic are showing up again to to take on the the Sith. And that was another moment kind of like the Ray, like Ray getting the lightsaber in the first film where I thought, oh, my God, like the, the tables have turned. And that was what that camera move was for. That's why the camera moved around, was to show you things have turned, that Ray and Ren are finally on the same page, right. that together they have a chance of beating Palpatine. Uh, I thought that was a great moment in the movie. And unfortunately, uh, right after that is when you got these fucking llama creatures <laughs> landing on a Star Destroyer in the middle of outer goddamn space.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, it, and th- th- that that and the bombs falling through space uh, pretending to abide by some mode of gravity that I don't understand in, uh, in, um, in the last Jedi, all of that harkens back to uh, the GI Joe movie. I can't tell you GI Joe after star Wars was probably my greatest obsession as a child. I had all yeah, the G.I. Yeah. GI Joe toys, comic books, special editions, sure. and blah, blah blah special forces. Blah. to see ice break up in, in the Arctic and then float downward in water, so that it could be a danger to the submarines that are trying to escape this enormous catastrophe in the third act. That was just fucking stupid. Right. And that's that's how I felt about llamas running around on a Star Destroyer, and that's how I felt about bombs falling through space. Yeah. It was fucking stupid.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I again,
0: I know we're talking about...
1: Space lasers, you know, sounds in space, and, and then things like that. But, uh, you know, I, I think what when I rewatched rise of Skywalker, um, I think when it came out first on Disney plus, or I I don't think I I bought the blu-ray yet. So I think I must've seen it on Disney plus. I think what, what stuck to me is by the time it came out, I think I was looking at it through the lens of the MCU. Um, And the way that I thought end game kind of stuck the landing for the MCU, this, this thing that it was building up to this big battle that involved every single character you'd introduced over a 19 movie span or something like that all came up to the end. And, and I, and I was moved to tears by that. Um, you know, even though I never cared about Marvel as much as I cared about star Wars, um, I was, I I thought they stuck the landing and I didn't think star Wars stuck the landing with this one. You know, yes, we had a bunch of ships shown up, but they were a bunch of nobodies. I mean, other than maybe bringing wedge back, um, you know, what was kind of that, you know, hearkening and and kind of call back to all the other um, things along the journey in the way. I mean, I know we kind of had that cool moment where we had Ray hearing the voices of, you know, Anakin and Yoda and Mace Windu and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and stuff like that. Um, I almost felt like it could have been more, you know, not that you want their ghost to show up and suddenly fight with her, but um, that there there could have been... They could have brought the saga to a completion in a way that was more satisfying as a saga ender. Because, you know, you did make it very clear. You even called the movie The Rise of Skywalker. So you're, you're kind of going all in to this story being a continuation of what you started with six, I guess at this point, eight other movies. And um, I don't know, maybe because you did blow your wad kind of making Han, Chewie, Luke, Leia primary characters... But I felt like they could have done a little bit more to kind of wrap that up nicely. Well, I, I
0: thought that the the Rise of Skywalker hit all the, the right emotional notes in terms of of the saga, in terms of uh, uh, after the fall of Palpatine, you had a series of of revisits with Luke and Leia finally being together again. Like, that's going to make me cry. That, I cried right, in the right. theater when I saw that image of the two of them together. And, uh, knowing that, uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher never shot that. Right. That was, they had to digitally put them two together. That, that makes me choke up just thinking about it. Right. Uh, the fact that she goes back to Tatooine and she, she tries to forget this horrible past that she's from and start a new life as this guy where she's making a choice not to be a Palpatine. Right. You know, there's.
1: I did enjoy that. There's. Yeah.
0: yeah I think all of those notes were, were, were very good. Um, but like you said, it's, it's punctuated with these plot points that just make you shake your head. Like I, I don't mind going to the smuggler planet. And actually I thought Carrie Russell's character was actually someone that I wanted to spend time. With. That was kind of yeah. like another Boba Fett showing
1: up. Right. Right. Exactly.
0: And so I, I, I'd like a series on her. I like, I don't know what she's a Zori. What, I think she's a human right? Zor Landrian or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Like I would be interested in spending eight hours with her. Sure. Um, and I thought that that fight scene between Rey and Ren where she's on the battleship in his room, and he's trying to find her on the planet, and because the their forces interacting with each other, they're switching places in the fight, and they can't they can see each other, but they can't see their environment, right? Because they're specifically blocking it from one another, right? And that entire interchange, which is set up very well in the second film, right and then parlayed very well for that fight in the, in the third film, I thought that was magically done by a master. And, and that's got very, if you see J.J. J. Abrams' other films, Super 8 and things like that, uh, you can tell that that was very specifically designed and sure. executed. Yeah. And you just, like, like the fight scene in the first film, and then like the first hour of the Force Awakens, you're left wondering why isn't the rest of the series that well planned?
1: That's very true. That's very true. And that's probably my biggest criticism of the, the saga is, and and to what extent, you know, is this Ryan Johnson just kind of throwing a mic- monkey wrench and everything by, by taking Last Jedi in the direction that he did, um, almost to where J.J. J. Abrams had to kind of like dig out of a hole. Um, but you're right. I think we, we kind of want to see new things with the Force, new things that the Force can do within reason. I, I think that, um, you know, when the plot depends on something that, no Jedi has ever been able to do suddenly like, Oh, they can do that now. Right. Okay. Um, they can blow
0: shit up in the sky now.
1: Right. Exactly. I, I, I guess I can, uh, I guess we'll go with that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I,
0: I just like the Sith can magically create tens of thousands of star destroyers. Each one can kill a planet.
1: Right. Exactly. And then the, there's, there's people, the, I guess the, the Palpatine's arm, not even army, but I guess his, his followers that are, I guess, magically appear from, from the ether and then disappear? I mean, are they there? Or are they not there? I don't know. So, yeah, I, I think it maybe was it was introducing a None, none of them, even
0: the audience of Sith. Yeah. None of yeah. whom de- decide at the point, well, let's stop the two Skywalkers that are fucking up the show. Yeah. They're just going to stay there in the background and die. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, lots of things to
1: complain about so maybe I think what I want going forward as a Star Wars fan maybe that's kind of a a good place to to kind of end um, is you know the same universe maybe something that rewards knowledge but doesn't depend upon it and introduce us to to new characters, new planets, new situations without burdening it with the expectations um, and, and even the similarities to the other films that's a good point. Uh, um, so so, good I don't know. Point. How about you? And what would you want to see going no, forward?
0: I think I will go with that. And I'd like to see a film with the same three characters, Finn, Ray, and Poe. Uh, that's a complete break from the Skywalker saga. And that's not a total waste of uh, the talents of an actor. Right. Like the guy who plays Finn, uh, John Boyega. He's an amazing actor. Sure. And they just, the last movie, he did fucking nothing with right. it. Right, right. Exactly. It's disgusting that they just threw him in the dream like that yeah ha- now having said that like again like the death of Carrie fisher just threw everything into it right exactly you know and they specifically brought billy d williams in to sort of help fill that
1: gap and i, I don't even think that was enough like it was great seeing him on screen but right right exactly it was, it was kind of novel it's kind of fun but you're right i think i remember reading early on that you know uh, episode seven was supposed to be Han's movie. Episode right. eight was Luke's movie. And nine right. was Leia's movie. Exactly. So they had some good stuff. And they I did. hope they I hope they release some of that. I hope they at least kind of say, hey, here's what we're thinking. Yeah. Um, just so we can kind of know um, what the character might have might have done.
0: Okay. So next time, I'm gonna save Solo sure. and Rogue One, which is my second favorite Star Wars movie. I think. All right. <laughs> or yeah. third. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna save that until next time. We'll we'll hit that before we sure. talk about the Oscars. Yeah, but I want
1: to thank you so much for coming yeah, over. Yeah, my pleasure. it's really been. It. Because no, we, we, we could do we could talk Star Wars for another six hours. and We're no, we, still not exhausted.
0: We gotta so, we gotta stop at some time. Yeah. So exactly. Thanks for coming over, man. Yeah,
1: my pleasure. It's been fun. Good. Thanks. Thank like you.